It's not like the gold medal that you hold at the end is the prize. Who you became to hold the gold medal is the prize. It's not like everything's going to be fine when I hold this thing. No. Who you become to hold this thing, that's it. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is one of my very best friends in the world who, I got to say, up front, demonstrated a huge amount of courage and vulnerability to come on the podcast and share quite openly his rather harrowing brush with mental illness, more specifically psychosis, in which he became altogether untethered from reality. Can you imagine anything more frightening? And his profoundly inspiring journey back to sanity, back to well-being and happiness. His name is Osher Gunsberg, which will no doubt be a name familiar to pretty much everyone tuning in from Australia, where he is one of the most, if not the most, prominent and celebrated television hosts and media personalities. Over the course of his career, Osher has hosted Australian Idol, The Bachelor Australia, The Bachelorette Australia, and The Masked Singer Australia. He narrates the Australian TV series Bondi Rescue, and he hosts his own podcast called Better Than Yesterday. RRP Hardcores may recall Osher's first appearance on the podcast over nine years ago. That was episode 76, where we discussed his journey to the big stage and his transformation from being a chubby kid to a plant-powered marathon-running host of Australian Idol. But shortly after that conversation, Osher, who is then living in Los Angeles, experienced a complete psychotic breakdown. It's a breakdown that left him terrified and distressed, wandering aimlessly around Venice Beach, convinced that the world was coming to an end. But rather than hide this experience and internalize his struggles with mental health and drug and alcohol use, Osher began to talk openly about his recovery journey. This experience ends up becoming the backbone for his beautiful memoir entitled Back After the Break, very cheeky title, which chronicles his journey through the depths of addiction, mental health battles, and the arduous quest for self-discovery, all important topics that we, of course, dive into today. In this conversation, he shares that terrifying experience in vivid detail, what happened, how he clawed his way back to sanity, the hard-earned lessons he's garnered along the way, and what we can all learn from his experience about mental health generally, mental health hygiene specifically, and the critical importance of mental health advocacy. I got a couple more things I would very much like to mention before we dig into this one, but first. Okay, this episode is absolute gold, and Osher's narrative serves as this powerful reminder that even in the darkest moments, there exists this potential for redemption, for rebuilding, and for reclamation of one's life. My hope is that Osher's story inspires you to deepen your own resilience and serves as a call to embrace your own journey towards personal growth. A bit of forewarning before we dive in, however, 
Suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation is a topic that comes up. So if you find that subject a bit too confronting, perhaps skip this episode. And for anyone who is suffering, who finds themselves right now in the acute grips, I want to say, please don't keep it to yourself. Please reach out. Help is available. And towards that end, a list of resources can be found in the show notes to the episode at richroll.com. So check that out. With that said, please enjoy my conversation with Osher Gunsberg. I love you. I'm so happy to be here. And, and you know, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. I think since 2012, maybe a little before that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was. It was 2011, yeah. 12, 12. I, mean, I just. Got, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I and I do divorced, remember. Yeah when Finding Ultra came out and I did a book signing yeah. in LA. <laughs> the Park La Brea. Three yeah. people came, <laughs> two of which were you and Dan McPherson. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My boy Dan. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. And the moment you spoke you spoke to Dan, you're like, all of a sudden you're like 10 people who you both know because of a, a Ironman community because right. he'd, yeah, he'd only yeah, just finished yeah, racing Ironmans yeah. a little while back. Um, anyway, so, you know, you, Dan, Australia in general, always <laughs> have a, a, a strong place in my heart. But I really want to um, get into your mental health journey. Yeah. Um, you've gone through a lot. Yeah. Um, you've come out the other side. But uh, of all of my friends, you've weathered perhaps the most intense, uh, you know, experience. <laughs> I don't know, man. Survived to tell the tale. Uh, and it's really, I'm you know, like, it's very I'm not impactful. being it's very into impactful. a fucking mountain of water, yeah. dude. Like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know. Like, I want to go there. Like, do you want to go there? Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, like, I'll be happy to. Like, so, it's really so important So walk me through do. this. Because, you know, I know, you know, from our history, you know, obviously, you know, through the recovery community, you know, I know your story with drugs and alcohol quite well. It's been so long since you've been on the podcast. So we can kind of get into that a little bit, but then what's really interesting is all the stuff that came after yeah. sobriety. What's interesting is where we're sitting right now, we're in a suburb of Sydney called North Bondi, and um, we are about 215 meters, um, which is a unit of measurement the rest of the world uses, <laughs> but for our you know isolationist North American or American friends, uh, it's about 900 feet, no, 600 feet <laughs> from one of the places that it all really started to fall apart um, about something years ago because, like, look, I was I was a jumpy kid. Um, I'm 49 as we're recording this. Um, I was a pretty jumpy kid. I remember going to, um, my parents took me to psychiatrist at the age of five. Now, what's going on with a kid that you go to a psychiatrist? I don't know. Mm. I just remember going. But they were trying to help me best they could and realized that whatever they were dealing with was beyond their... Jumpy, set. meaning like hyperactive, it's terrified, AD, anxious, ADHD. mega anxious. Like, no, that stuff didn't come to quite later. It was just like full, mega, mega panic attack, like ultra panic attacks. I remember like, like the kind of panic attacks um, that were just so overwhelming, and um, I distinctly remember being so terrified and going to hide under my bed at the age of five, I think, and I couldn't. But hiding under the bed didn't make it go away because the thing that was terrifying was in my own body, and I couldn't escape it. I was, it was just a feeling that had kind of no real trigger to it um, and I couldn't get away from it and it was really, really bad. Um, and then I think, so my stomach would feel really bad and then um, I found that, you know, a way to make my stomach not feel bad was to put things in it. 
Mm-hmm. So I started to eat quite compulsively. And um, at the age of eight, I ended up in Weight Watchers. So when I went to my first 12-step meeting, I'm like, oh, I know this. <laughs> I've been here before. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, my, my mom and my dad, they tried really hard. You know, they really did. Did everything they could. Mum took me because that was the only... This is before kind of pediatric kind sure. of weight control shit. This is in the 80s. And that was all there was in Brisbane. Um, and I think by the, about the age of 17, I left high school at 112 kilos, which is 250-something wow. pounds. Like, it was big. I didn't realize you were that big. Yeah, yeah, I was big. Mm. I was big. And um, I still got the stretch marks. And yeah, that's, you know, mega body shame and bullying and like, terrified of having my shirt off and like so afraid of having my shirt off like would and I remember being I was so big that I would always swim with a t-shirt on because I was so ashamed of my own body and um I distinctly remember being on holidays once with a mate up in Caloundra oh no uh Malulaba. I was like 15 16 I remember swimming in the ocean in the surf and I was body surfing because I always loved body surfing and I stood up out of a wave and I looked down and um there was blood spots on my T-shirt because the T-shirt had rubbed my nipples mm-hmm. so much that I was bleeding. And, um, yeah, it was no fun. So how did you, how did you like lose the weight and become this sort of iconic <laughs> surfer, you know, the, the, the emblematic of like everything, you know, youthful in Australia oh. as like Andrew G on Channel <laughs> yeah, V. Yeah, I know, right? Um, well, the, the first thing that happened is like I was, I got unemployed um, in the early nineties, um, we were at I think 12% youth unemployment in Queensland. It was a lot. And I couldn't get a job anywhere. And I just might, I didn't do very well in high school and I ended up sitting and I was, I had lived at home. I was on the dole and I just felt my brain just going to mush cause I wasn't being, it's before the internet, you know, <laughs> there's, so I'd read all my books twice, I'd just sit there and watch TV all day and I could just feel my brain just going to porridge because I wasn't getting stimulated and I wasn't able to do anything and I just got fatter and fatter and then one day I, um, I, I, I just felt the need, it's like, oh, shit, I've got to go for a walk, I've got to go do something but I, I've been trying to go for a walk but I couldn't go out, I couldn't get out of the house for a couple of days and knew I had to do something and so I tricked myself by saying, I'll just go check the mail because this is before the internet. Um, the most exciting thing that happened in the day was when the mailman came. And, oh, a sales catalogue. And so I, my mailbox was over here down my driveway, but I went that way. And I walked that way and went up around the block and I came back. It was about 800, 800 metres or so. And I picked up the mail. I went, oh, got the mail. And then I went and basically lay down for about four hours because it was the most exercise I'd done in a long time. And... I did that again the next day and then the next and the next and it kind of got easier and I was less breathless every time, just walking. And then there was a larger block around, it was about a mile, uh, one, one and a half k's or so. And I started doing that and I did that for about a week and a half, two weeks. And then one day I just, I was doing this every day. And then one day I was like, I, I started to feel this thing. And when I read your book, I was like, ah, that's the thing that happened to me. <laughs> I just felt this thing. I was like, I, I just, I just, I just have to. And I was suddenly, um, you know, Connor McLeod on the beach with Sean Connery in Highlander, that terrible right. film, but it's amazing. I just, I had to start running and I ran and like, you know, wind in my face and I'm like, yeah. and then I could feel my chest was exploding and I, my heart was going to explode. And I, I stopped and I just kept walking. I looked back and I'd run the distance between two telephone poles, which is about 30 meters. And, 
Then the next day I ran between one and then I passed the telephone pole and I stopped at one after that. So I ran three. And the next day I ran four. It was literally just increasing above by 30 mm. meters at a time. And then soon enough I was running the whole thing. And once I started that, the weight just fell off me, man. And um, I was about 19, so I'm, you know, right. had metabolisms on my side. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like I lost so much weight so fast. I reckon I lost maybe 10, 10 or 20 kilos in about three months, like really wow. quick, really, really quick. So I wasn't eating terrible food. I was actually eating okay. And I remember sitting next to a bloke I went to school with at a bar and he looked straight at me and didn't recognize me. I was like, holy shit. Oh, it's because I've got a chin. Oh, right. mm. um, it's been, you know, and then there was, that was, there was a couple of times that I went up and down through that. Um, I got bigger, I got smaller, I got bigger, I got smaller. I never really got a handle on what it was to understand my own hunger. Um, but it was um, quite a bit later that that I did um, eventually, because I found out that my relationship to hunger was, I treated it like my, both my parents were refugees. Well, we grew up with my grandmother who survived um, World War Two, and, you know, victory over Hitler was fat kids. So... You know, sure. get those calories yeah, yeah. in, buddy. And, um, you know, that was, and that was it. So hunger was a thing to be terrified of. And this is not uncommon in um, the children of, of immigrants or, you know, children of people who have, you know, been through, uh, you know, war or something like that. And so I, you know, kind of understood that, oh, hunger's just a signal. After a while, hunger's just a signal and um, I'll be okay. And after a while, I figured out I was, but that didn't mm. come until mm -hmm. only a little while mm -hmm. ago. As far as, you know, getting, it was around about that time when I was, I was running a lot. Um, even though I was running, things were still hard. I did feel better in my head, but things started to get quite hard and I was very, very hung up um, and having really intensive, obsessive thoughts about, um, <laughs> of all things, um, sexually transmitted diseases. All right. And this is at a time when AIDS could kill you. It's a miracle that in my lifetime you can be HIV positive and have an amazing life and take prep every day and not pass it on to somebody else. That's like unbelievable. That is Apollo program level breakthrough. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing because it was a death sentence. You remember it? Sure, of course. Was, I was living in New York City in my early 20s. Right. And yeah, it, it just it, it just occupied a huge part of your conscious awareness. Yeah. This terrifying. lingering fear that, yeah. you know. It was terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And I was becoming kind of somewhat sexually active. And, um, you know, I, I had these completely irrational responses to, you know, having a, having a passion or, you know, uh, not essentially sex, but, you know, something between that with, uh, you know, somebody that I'd met at a, you know, at a, I was working as a roadie car. I was on the road mm -hmm. with a bunch of old road dogs and, um, that's right. I forgot about that. You showed me how to quail. Court. <laughs> Never <laughs> forget. Over under, Rich. <laughs> yeah. Over under. I still think about that. I'll teach, I'll teach you how to, I'll teach you how to deliver a sick keynote and yeah. roll a good cable. That's, you know, there's two things you'd be fine. And, um, so these really quite benign and non-risky at all sexual behaviours, I was 100% convinced I was going to die. And so I would show up at the clinic and demand a blood test and go, I'm going to, I'm going to, I need you to give me this test because I'm sure I've contracted this disease. And, um, and then you have to wait six weeks for the results and then six weeks I'll be planning my funeral. I'm not even joking. It was so terrible. I think about the third time this happened within about six months, this person at the clinic said, why don't you go see someone for me? Because you've come here a few times now. I want you to go see someone. And, and 
amazingly, you know, we've got this incredible public health system here in Australia that's free. Um, your country may want to look into that. It's <laughs> fucking great. It's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? We also have no guns on the streets, but that's a, it's unbelievable. Uh, as much as I dislike the person and the government that did do that, that's they fucking did something with that. Uh, but uh, I got extraordinarily lucky, so, so lucky, because I was starting to, by this point, not really look at strangers in the eye. I was starting to get a bit kind of barky rather than speaking to people who I didn't know and starting to get it. I was 19 mm-hmm. and it was the first kind of tendrils of really kind of serious shit was starting to happen. And just neur- neurosis driving your life. Basically. Yes, but then ne- quite, quietly up into the point of like, n- like literally not being able to look at people. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, excuse me, just go, blah, blah, like just not really being, that started to happen. Not all the time, but it was starting to happen. And um, so I went to this outpatient clinic in Fort Edgewood Valley in Brisbane, which is, I guess, now it's gentrified and amazing. But then it was like Skid Row or Hollywood. Like Hollywood's mm. not a nice place. Hollywood's a fucking awful, awful, awful place. With <laughs> Hollywood is an idea, Asher. Not, Help. A, not, not a geographic. What does what does Greg Proop say? There's no such thing. There's no such place as Hollywood. It's a it's a collective idea held at the same time by a hundred thousand assholes. <laughs> Basically, yeah. it's a perfect, but like the actual yeah. place, Hollywood. But the intersection, well, the intersection of Hollywood and Vine has changed quite a bit in the last decade. Yeah. But the idea, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and that it's it was not like, like when you see a bunch of tourists dodgy, lingering around dodgy there, place. Dodgy, looking dodgy, for dodgy. Hollywood. Yeah, dodgy yeah. place, dodgy place, uh, methadone clinics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I went to this outpatient, this mental health outpatient clinic there, and I remember walking in. And if you've never been to an outpatient clinic for a psych unit that you'll never, you'll like this smell, you'll never forget because you're dealing with people who look, I'm literally spending my days escaping Tyrion Lannister coming at me on a dragon while a, a drummer based party of hell angels is, is screaming in every ear. I don't have time to think about turning on a shower. You know, that's just mm-hmm. not even anywhere near what they're thinking about because uh, there's no space. And so that and cigarettes at the time, nicotine, obviously, you know, easily available, down-regulated. I remember going in there going, fuck, I'm, I don't belong here, I don't belong here. And then I saw this really kind and lovely psychologist, his name was Mari, and Mari started to, I kept saying, look, I don't belong here, there's people out there that, you know, you should be seeing, not me, I don't, I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm not. And then over time, it turns out I was, I did, did belong there. <laughs> and... It's terrifying. It's a terrifying yeah. realization, especially yeah. in the context of a place like that where you where you see people that are very unlikely to rebound yeah. And, yeah. and reintegrate. I was yeah. very lucky. I was so lucky to be caught by a public health system. And I I love my country so much and I'll defend it to the end because it stuff like that. You know, there's this this safety net, this public health system caught caught me. Mm. I don't know where I would have ended up had those incredible people not seeing something and gone, you should really go and have a chat. And she got me to a pretty good spot. I ended up, um, you know, then I, I finally, I ended up in an actual relationship with an actual human being and that was nice. And then I kind of got into radio and, uh, but it was about then that I started really quite intensely using um, alcohol and drugs mm-hmm. to to manage what was going on in my brain. Because look, if you... If you don't know what's happening, 
But when you, like for me, I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew that when I drank or when I smoked weed, it was a little bit better. It wasn't all the way It's better. also highly reliable. You know exactly what you're going to get. At first. And if you're walking around, <laughs> you know, with this like low-grade to high-grade anxiety and, yeah. you know, this bundle of nerves and, and you know, the energy that you don't know how to contain or manage. Yeah. And, you know, you, you drink a few pops or you do what you do and it's like, ugh. There's a relief. Uh, it's, it it's is hard a, to describe yeah. for somebody who who doesn't have the itch. But. I, would, I would say it's a release, not a relief, because a relief has an idea of like it's it's going or gone. For me, it was just a reprieve. Oh, yeah, it was like oh, it's just just. But the true peace from it was always another beer or another bump or another whatever away, and. Unfortunately, the more that you drink or use, that gets further away, like you're in a nightmare. And yeah, but we deal with that later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, the, in the meantime, yeah. like this is, this works, you yeah. know, it works until it doesn't work. But yeah. I think it's important to say that it does work in the short term. It works. You wouldn't keep doing it. It was my solution. You know, it's yeah. the oldest thing in the world. It's like it was, alcohol wasn't my problem, it was my solution. Mm-hmm. But then what I, the amount that I needed to feel at all okay, uh, to be around other people or when I was in my house by myself to feel that noises and the shitty thinking and all the you know, horrible brain stuff going on to make sure all that stuff was quiet enough that I could just be still. That dosage became just too dangerous. Right. Um, How long did it take for that to happen, <laughs> oh, for that man. to get unleashed? I mean, did you have, because it's socially approved of oh. and you can do it out in, open, out in the open in public, oh. um, there is a sense of like, oh, okay, well, I'm okay for now. I can do yeah, this. There's a lot Did of you have of... an awareness from the get-go like oh, that this is problematic? I think I was about 24 when um, my long-term girlfriend at the time, I remember being just so hammered, trying to walk, I couldn't walk. And um, I'm, I was in her lap. She had a cross leg, so I'm in her lap and I had very, very, very long hair at the time. I was in a f- funk metal band. It was very long shorts. It was the 90s. And she was brushing kind of chunky vomit-soaked hair out of my mouth so I could breathe properly. And she looked down at me and she's like, you maybe want to think about why you keep doing this to yourself because it's starting to get pretty bad. And I'm like, I'm not an alcoholic. Fuck off. I'm going to stop whenever I want. Mm. So I think I was about 22. Mm. I ended up having to stop drinking. I ended up actually stopping drinking like six, 14 years later. So it took 14 years. Um, and that wasn't the first, that was kind of the first time someone had really seen that because I was getting into amphetamines and things like that by the point. Uh-huh. Um, which was great because I could keep drinking. Uh, but uh, it kept getting told to me again and again and again. And there's that reaction just kept coming. I'm going, oh, I can sit whenever I want. I'm fine. And, I and meanwhile, your, your kind of star is ascending. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. That seems to have all happened really fast. Yeah. Did you always like want the spotlight <laughs> in that way? Were you somebody who was like, I want to be on TV or I want to have this kind of publicly facing role? Like how did that all come about from being a roadie to being on radio and then being on television? It started before that actually. I remember like that same nervous kid that would, you know, be terrified and, you know, be compulsively eating and going to Weight Watchers. I think I was about nine, eight or nine years old. Um, We had a school assembly every Friday and our class had a, it was every class would put on a, a, a sketch or something, a little play. Yeah, uh-huh. we worked on it that week and every, we all took it in turns. And because, you know, it was always like, um, I don't know, pick up rubbish at school time or um, whatever you're doing, don't masturbate because Jesus is always watching you. 
like it was that kind of school. Right. So it was our play, our turn, and um, I'm on. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to go on stage, and I hear my cue, and I walk out, and I see all these like hundreds of kids all staring up at me like that. At the play was about um, picking up rubbish. So, <laughs> and, okay. Um, and I think the line was along the line. It was something along the lines of "Don't commit a sin, put it in the bin," and they all fucking laughed. And that was like, <gasps> like when I first did you know proper class A drugs. I was like, I know this feeling. Mm. I had this feeling on stage once, <laughs> and it was where like what was anxiety for me? Anxiety was. Uh, lack of control and lack of understanding what was about to happen next and lack of control of the situation and lack of uns- lack of certainty. When I'm on stage, I know everything that's going to happen. I know exactly what's going to happen next. I'm the only one talking. Everyone else is quiet. Oh. But my coping that's mechanism, so interesting. So I just started chasing that. Yeah. Um, and that you're associating those two things in a, in a similar way. Yeah, yeah. Using drugs and being on stage are giving yeah. you the same, it was the same, same feeling. feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And wow. it was a... Unfortunately, my coping mechanism became my career, <laughs> and uh, uh, that worked. But I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, mm. that worked until it didn't. I have a very, very different approach to work now. Uh, but for a while, and, and it started to get quite toxic. Um, there was definitely t- parts towards the very end of my drinking and using when I would just seethe in resentment. Like if we were doing a TV show together, um, I would look at the script and go. Um, uh, Rich, excuse me, excuse me. Rich, Rich has eleven words, and then I have nine. Then Rich has ten, and then I have seven. And, like, and I got all the jokes. <laughs> it's such a cliche. I wish it was different, yeah. mate. I wish it wasn't true, but it's fucking true. And I was, I considered it a com- fucking a wounding crime that this had happened. <laughs> and how mm. dare you? I was just the worst. It was awful. It was an awful way to be. I hated that. I that it felt like that. Mm. I hated that feeling. Um, I have a very different approach to work now. Yeah. Actually. No, I know that. I know that. But you, you so you become this Andrew G guy, right? Yeah. Who's, you're, you're essentially like a VJ on yeah. this Channel V, which I'm trying to imagine was probably not dissimilar from MTV it was in, its, TRL. in its yeah, heyday yeah. or yeah, whatever. Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was TRL. So you're, you're like a pop culture figure at that <laughs> yeah. point. Like yeah. at least your generation, everybody knows who you are. Yeah. You got the hair, you got the looks. Yeah. You're sort of this uh, symbol of Australian youth. Yeah. Somewhat. And and you're getting, you know, you're right, and you're living large, right? You're, li- Very, you're living here in Bondi and, yes. you know, lots of drugs, lots of partying, lots uh, of girls, lots of attention. Yes, all of that, but it was also very much a... Uh, stop looking at me. Why aren't you looking at me? Please stop looking. How come you're not looking? Like it was that complete oscillation that was unbearable. Um, it was really weird. It was very, very weird. Um, the, the, the weird thing that happened when I was on music television, uh, was, you know, I was using alcohol to cope with this. It was a lot of stress being on, I was 25, you know, um, been in radio for a long time and then moved to Sydney, left everyone. Um, my girlfriend and I came here and, and I was heap of, heap of pressure. It was so much fun. It was the best job I ever had. It was unfucking believable. I love music, man. I get paid to talk about music every right. day. Three hours live TV talk a day. To all the biggest rock stars in the world when they pass yeah, through. But yeah, yeah, but not only that, it was also talking to like just fans of music who live. Now you know how huge our country is as big as, as yours, all right? The lower 48 at least. And people live. People live 400 k's from a post office, mate. It's, it's, and I'm talking to people on satellite phones who really want to hear their favorite Ice Cube song. 
And I'm like, how do you love Ice Cube? Oh, I love him. Like, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm on farm, you know. And it was unbelievable speaking to people mm. from all, all across our community. It was amazing. And, I'm, you know, working in live TV, there's nothing like it, mate. It's just, it's just the best working as a team. And it's just so much fun. But it was a lot of stress. And the thing was, is like the kind of refs per minute you need to get up to to perform that kind of thinking three hours at a time. That doesn't stop at seven o'clock when you go off air. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, whoa, what do I do? What do I do now? What right. do I do? It's like, I'm st- I've got a lot. I'm coming yeah, with in. With no healthy <laughs> tools for down-regulating no, yourself. No, no. And, and mm-hmm. to the point where we're like, we would, I remember we would go on the road and um, my floor manager would hand me a beer as I walked off stage. He'd take my mic off me and hand me a cold beer. And, you know, I'm in the music industry. In 2001, I was, um, I was on a work trip. I went to America for a work trip. And it was me and my producer, Ben, and our cameraman, Mike, and um, our sounder, Andy. And we were, it was my first time in Los Angeles. And we got caught in a riot in Hollywood, of all goddamn places. Sketchy. And it was a, a band called System of a Down. Mm-hmm. And... They had no, it was put on by a radio station there and they had no real security. And I'd been around venues and I'd, you know, seen some pretty wild stuff happening both as a roadie and then later on with the bigger gigs working at V backstage and stuff like that and going on tour with big festivals. So I'd seen how badly you can go when even a couple hundred people decide they want to go that way and everybody else wants to go that way. It can be, people can die. All right. And I, I saw it happen once. It was awful, awful, awful. And... So we could see that this gig was five minutes late and it was 10 minutes late and the capacity was probably, I don't know, they probably thought they were going to have 1,500 people, like mm-hmm. 8,000 people showed mm-hmm. up. And I don't have to tell you. I think but, I remember that. Was it, was it K-Rock put that on maybe? Yeah, yeah. Was exactly it out right. in the streets? That's right, it yeah, was. Yeah, I do remember when that And was, yeah. I was heavy. Mm-hmm. No, no body searches, no weapons checks, no nothing going into the place. And it got later and later and later and then it became... We sort of looked around and realized we were standing with a bunch of media and we realized everyone else has left. Oh, shit. And we were kind of cornered in the back of this gigantic parking lot. And there was about between five and 8,000 people between us and the street. And they started to take the backdrop down and that was it. The place just erupted and they were pushing over speaker stacks. We watched, we watched a kid, like she nearly got crushed by this speaker stack. We got footage of it. Like it like brushed the back of her T-shirt and... And everyone's looking around and there's my cameraman, Jacko. We're filming all this and someone just grabs for his camera. It's about 120 grand worth of camera and everything pulled together. And they grab it and he pulls it back. And then then it became this, like eight mm, people are on top of him on. and they're punching onto him. And, you know, my producer, Ben, drags him out of there. And then one of the one security guy stayed behind and he had an uns- unscrewed a mic stand and this metal bar just starts raining down on these people that are on top of Jacko. And I'm seeing forearms and shit like that. And then we drag Jacko out of there and I pull up a chain link cyclone fence because it was right behind Hollywood High. Um, I pull up this chain link cyclone fence and we got out underneath. But then now we're in a a school with these 20 length, twenty meter high, like 10 meter high fences yeah. all around it. Like, how do we get out of here? And some of those kids followed us in. I'm like, Jesus, how are we going to get out of this? And we, we climbed over another fence and we, we get out into, I can't remember what street it was. It was one that ends up right by the Montalban Theatre, right? 
And we get out and we look and there's like horses and riot cops loading up rubber bullets and like Jacko's covered in blood. And we're like, what the fuck is this? And then out of nowhere between all these cops who are staging around the corner ready to go, this cab just appears out of nowhere. And like... How have you ever have you ever hailed a cab on the streets in LA? No, never. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. We were, it was really scary, and we thought, you know, what's going to be amazing if we, oh fuck, let's get out of here. Jacko went to see the Sinai. He was pretty fucked up, and like, yeah, it's going to be amazing. Let's get the fuck out of here. This was September the third. Mm. Like in a week from now, we'll be in New York City, and we'll be interviewing bands, and we'll be having a great time. Oh shit. Yeah, yeah. And then we were there. We, we woke up. I you were in New York City on, on 9-11. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. And we were safe, you know, but we were on like 51st, something mm-hmm. like that. But it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And um, so, so, like the most an unbelievable panic attack. And like, I, I, pan- I had a panic attack so intense, I fell asleep. My body just went and shut down. Mm. And that was it. And it was terrifying. And it took us ages to get out and like physically we were fine. It took us about two weeks or two and a half weeks to end up getting home to Sydney. We were coughing up black stuff for about six weeks, but that was about it. Right. And I was f- physically fine, but I remember being back at work and just staring at the thumbtacks on the squishy wall of my cubicle. At four o'clock, I'd go on, on air and go, and Rich is asking for a Britney Spears song and da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm. And we're clear. And I would do that. Mm. And one day I'm just staring there. I'm normally a fairly boisterous person sometimes. And my boss, Jackie, she comes by. She goes, you okay? I said, no. Said, would you like to see someone? Yeah. And amazingly, she, um, she organized a psychologist uh, for me to go see who specializes in debriefing, you know, trauma response mm-hmm. and things like that. And I went to go see this guy called Phil. And he had this amazing office up in Manly. So, you know, I went surfing with him. <laughs> You know, we'd finish our session and go surfing. It was unreal, unreal. And he says, you've got PTSD. I'm like, fuck off. I don't have PTSD. I'm fine, mate. And he went, oh, okay then. And he gets up and he walks over to his bookshelf and he pulls off this book, this, uh, the DSM-4, which is like the, the back before, before maps on your phone, you would have this big map of streets, right? So it's the essentially a street map where psychiatrists can basically talk to each other. Every condition yeah. defined. Yeah, well, it helps people who are talking about the same patient mm-hmm. to have an idea of what's going right. on. Right. Are we on DSM-5 now? By or now, six? we are. It was four yeah, back then. Four. And he opens it to, and he hands it and goes, read that. And I was like, fine. And I looked down, I was like, okay, so someone snuck in here and uh, written some shit out that they saw while watching me and then put it in the same font on the same grade of paper and snuck it into this book because <laughs> it was like exactly what was going on. And I had to be in acceptance that this was happening. And um, because of that, I was like, okay, then, well, what do I do about this? He taught me cognitive behavioral therapy, which was mm-hmm. I'd never known before. I'd never known that you could, just because I think it, it doesn't make it real. It took a lot of practice, but I started to work on that. And that was really interesting to get that initial kind of idea that just because I feel it doesn't mean it's real. Mm-hmm. And just because I think this is happening, where's the evidence for that? Maybe I'm not saying that. And developing that awareness and that recognition is going to come into play later. In well, a, in a absolutely. Way. But all but that the work. recurring theme here is is a willingness to seek out and receive help. 
not that, as willing as I was to go, yeah. you know what? Alcohol is way easier. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's, de- let's delay that one, right? <laughs> yeah. It's easier. If I, just, uh-huh. if I just drink, and I'm see, I'm drinking red wine by this point, Rich. I'm not just drinking beer. I'm a connoisseur. Come on. I'm, I'm buying, like, I remember like buying this really expensive bottle of red and hammered, and I was going to open another one, and an uh, older bloke I work with, she goes, don't open it. It'd be like feeding strawberries to pigs. <laughs> Right. You could do all the CBT you want and talk talk your ears off, you yeah. know, with, with a shrink. Yeah. Uh, but if you're just hitting the bottle and, you know, yeah. doing all the other stuff, but all, it's all, only going to go so far. Yeah. yeah. But all, all that, uh, uh, the ability to question and double check my thinking came in really handy when it finally came time to stop mm-hmm. drinking because that's really quite fun. That's a fundamental leap you need to make when you first stop drinking. You actually need to understand that just because you see it that way doesn't mean that's the way it is. Right. And that would have been a very hard thing for me to get to at the same time as everything mm-hmm. else. But thankfully, I had that experience and I was very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, like most people, I reckon I took a good, I white knuckled it for a year and all that was is, you know, what's it? Well, it's alcohol. It's a fucking freely available, widely legal, self-administered depressant. Um, When, you know, in in this country, there's so many drugs that are illegal because they're worried that kids are going to overdose, but I can walk across the street and buy enough gin to kill me for 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's completely fine. Yeah. That's bullshit. It's fucking bullshit. All right? There's a debate in this country going on at the moment about legalizing medical marijuana or legalizing marijuana. Like, Mate, there's two drugs, Rich, two drugs that if you are drinking them or using them to enough point and you stop straight away, you'll die. Alcohol and benzodiazepines, both illegal. That's not okay. Mm. That's not okay. And yeah, here we are. You know, um, it's just that culturally alcohols, I didn't know that you could not drink. I didn't know that it could ever happen. I feel happen. like that's changing though. The younger generation now. has a very different relationship with alcohol. And I don't know oh, what yeah. it's like in Australia, but in North America, the habits of young people are very different. And possibly that's because um, other drugs are just more widely available or cheaper or more accessible or yeah. you know, don't give you the same hangover or what what have you. But Do we dare admit it's because yeah. they don't want to look sloppy on a <laughs> maybe on a, on a uh, yeah, Instagram thing that's never going to go away? Yeah, yeah. there's that. Yeah. Um, and the whole, you know, marijuana thing is also, a, you know, kind of a whole other podcast as well. Oh, I have lots of opinions about that. I have that, thoughts about that, mate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so you, you get back, you're dealing with, you get back from New York, you're dealing with the PTSD, yeah, you're yeah. doing the CBT, you're drinking, your career is advancing. Yeah. Um, at some point, you know, you, you, you move on and you're doing like, you become the host of American Idol. Yeah, well, Australian Idol, yeah. Yeah, Australian, yeah, of yeah. course. yeah. It's it's like a free, it's like a that. it's it's like a McDonald's <laughs> franchise, all right. You sell the yeah. franchise, all right. You know, so I don't know. Say you create a, you say you create Fighting Ultra, the reality show, right? You would then. This is the format. Um, there's the coach, you know, Coach Health or whatever. Uh, you know, it works. Plug it, it in. Plug it in over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. You need the champion. You need the one who's got. Everyone's got to have somewhere to go. You need the one who's trying to find redemption. You need the one who's trying to find a reconnect with her daughter. You need the one who cries. You need the one who. <laughs> Mate, this is it's called, and you need the right host, and it comes in a Bible. Rich Roll is going to be your host. All right, we'll get Simon Hill to be the chef. It's going to be amazing. And then when you sell that turkey, they go, "Huh, okay." So who's the Australian uh, Turkish version of this? This, 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 and you make money in your sleep. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a franchise like anything else. And so 
Yeah, I, I was one of the hosts of Australian Idol. Uh, me and Jimmy hosted it for, I hosted it for seven years. He did it for six. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. It was un- incredible. It was un- unreal. And, and it's capturing an audience share that probably would be impossible it's never today, happen again. right? It's never so happen again. when you're hosting that, it had to be relatively surreal. I know that like even wasn't there what what year was it where the the um the finale was at the opera house? Yeah. And yeah, know, we did just, everyone there, yeah. Right. Yeah, we did every, the first I think the first finale, the one in four adult Australians watched that. This is it was like the Olympics don't get those kind of numbers, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just a, it's a cornerstone of Australian pop culture. And thankfully, you know, everything that, I mean, Jim and I had been on air at Channel V doing hundreds and hundreds of hours of live TV every week, every year, sorry. And so by the time we get to Idol, it's very funny because all that kind of network people are like, yeah, but this is real television, boys. Like, you know what? Get fucked. All right. <laughs> like, we... <laughs> We put our reps in. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, mate. Don't worry. Spot. And where are you with with your mental health and with drugs and alcohol at this point? I was pretty jumpy. I was very much a, you know, it was odd because while I was thinking, everyone was looking at me. Everyone was looking at me. You know, I had people walking up to me in the street. Um, It's wild because it's twenty years later right now. I've got the same haircut. Yeah, you're back. I've had like you're five big. haircuts. Yeah, you got five you, haircuts and two got, names. Yeah, it's, this is the closest to, to Andrew that you've looked at. You know, oh yeah, in a yeah, long absolutely, time, without a doubt. The current do. Yeah, totally. And um, people, I'll just be doing my groceries, man. And people will come up to me and grab my hair and pull it and turn. Oh, it's not a wig. You know, and their mates filming on their shitty phone. And like that would happen in the middle of the day. You know, I'd be at, you know, at a bar or whatever and people would come by and someone would bump my, and my beer would fly everywhere. And, you know, the guy would then turn around like, fucking whatever. And I knew enough to start, I knew what to look for. And if the guy was there and he'd opened his body that way, if I looked that way, there was someone filming on their phone there. I'm like, sorry, mate. I'm sorry I was in your way. Mm. You know, that would happen every, it would happen all the time. Wow. All the time. Um, it was... Yeah, I mean, look, the thing, the thing when you when you got a job like that, and I'm sure you you know, understand what I'm talking about. Like you don't end up having to pay for drugs; they're just always there. <laughs> it's people like, hey, mate, that's fine. Oh, thank you very much. Don't mind if I do, right? <laughs> you know, and it was just, it was just par for the course, man. It was just, it was just all over the shop. And I remember trying. I I started to understand that I had a problem, real problem with alcohol when I um, I met um, my ex-wife now, and um. There's a joke among the acting community in Australia. I won't say her name because she's quite a high-profile Australian actress, but she said, oh, you don't think you've got a drinking problem until you leave Australia. And then you get to America and go, so anyway, <laughs> what? It's, it's five past 12 on a Saturday. I mean, okay, more for me. And I kind of realized, I went to the Middle East for the first time and I was like, oh, wow, our cultural relationship with alcohol here is quite fucking weird mm. and not okay and quite damaging and I came back and I I tried to not drink beer for a year so I drank heaps of vodka and it was mm-hmm. quite, quite a classic I changed horses um, but eventually just like a duck to water mate I was, I was back on it and then uh, by about 2009 I could I was like bloated again I was really fat and I started to um, I understood that I needed to stop I knew that I'd, and I tried to stop a few times by myself. I tried a bunch of times by myself. Couldn't do it. I reckon I got a couple of weeks up at a time, maybe six, maybe seven, and then I'll be right. And then half a sip of Heineken and then 
it's 2 a.m. and I'm doing Jägermeister and, you yeah, know. You're off. It was, there was gotta, no ability. You kind of have it. to have that experience to really lock into yeah. the powerlessness of the whole thing. Yeah. And, but it got worse, you know, and then it got worse. Mm-hmm. And then um, that TV show ended, you know, and I had put no work in at all to see if I was going to have any kind of continuity career. I, I just expected that the, I was turning away more than I could say yes to. I just expected the phone would never stop ringing. I'd ex- just expected that it would just keep going and going, 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 going. And then that show went away and I didn't know what to do. Um, it was right around the same time that I was in America and um, actually Dan McPherson was in town and he and I went for a hike on uh, on the Runyon Canyon and we were just talking about shit. He was over there for pirate season and I slipped at the very top of Running Canyon, we were descending, it can be rocky and slippery there. Mm-hmm. And I slipped and I did a, like a kind of exaggerated runner's lunge essentially and I blew my MCL in my right knee. And at that point, it was the most painful thing I'd ever experienced. And I took about 600 milligrams of ibuprofen that night and I went to go see my doctor the next day. I was like, this happened to my knee and like, it really hurts. And he goes, oh, I'll just take some ibuprofen. I was like, man, I took 600 milligrams last night. It didn't work. He goes, oh, I'll give you some Viking. Mm. And like five minutes later, I'm standing downstairs with a hundred Vicodin pills in my hand. He didn't ask me any questions, didn't ask anything. And now that is a, that's a slippery slope because it still fucking hurts. You just don't care. And when I mixed it with beer, it was like, so needless to say, that was, I reckon that was January. Yeah. It was like January, 2010. Mm -hmm. I was... I was in meetings by the middle of March. Mm, so that's what that's what ultimately <laughs> brought you to your knees. Yeah, so. absolutely, literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah literally. Because yeah. I just could, I couldn't not do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't not do it, and yes. um, it's a very, very slippery slope that stuff. And so, like, cut to like the last couple of years, I've been through some pretty interesting stuff with my hip, and I've had a hip replacement, and some stuff didn't go right with the surgery, and the pain was unfathomable, but I, I couldn't touch those kind of drugs. Right. Because like, there was one point where we have a, our, our, our Emmys are called the Logies here. That's TV's Night of Nights, you know. And uh, the first Logie Australian Idol ever won. I've, I've still got the scar in my hand. I've broken my hand snowboarding and I'd, I'd come back here and I was off my guts on Percocet because I, I was in North America and they said, I said, I've got to fly back and I'm worried about my hand. And, and it right. gave me this big tub of Percocet like that. And it's the kind of thing that I took a pill in Vancouver and I woke up in Sydney, mm-hmm. you know, and I, uh, I, 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 I know I held the Logie in my hand. I have, I do not remember. You don't remember anything. Not a thing. Wow. Not a thing. Yeah. And I'm on national television <laughs> <laughs> at the peak of my career. You know, I could have done, I could uh-huh. have done anything. And there was a bloke I now work with, the guy that know guy by the name of Dave Hughes is amazing. He doesn't drink. And a couple of months later, I'd seen him on, on radio and I'd, you know, typical fuckwit, you know, it's sunglasses in the morning and, you know, 6 a.m., 6.30 radio. I mean, they're going, and he goes, this is Dave. G'day, mate. How are you? Goes, mate, we've met before. Like, I've never met you. Mate, I gave you your Logie. <laughs> <laughs> remember. Oh my God. But the thing is like in the, in the, you know, canon of like hitting bottom, it's, it's, you know, it's, you could have gone a lot lower, you know, but it is what it is. The pain threshold is what it is. Um, You know, it brought you in. I'm, you know, and I've heard you speak about this and I really related to it in that I just have this ability to withstand discomfort that is different to other people. 
and what would probably have stopped others. And I've had a number of doctors now tell me going, how are you still moving? Mm. Well, how did you walk in here? They're looking at my blood test going, how are you standing upright? This doesn't work. How do you do this? I don't know, man. I just, there's a bit of my brain that won't stop. Um, part of it has given me the life and the career I've have, but part of that is, has tried to kill me. Mm-hmm. And it's managing the, the shitty part. Yeah, and untangling that is so difficult. <laughs> yes. Because when you're forced to confront and break up with your best friend, yeah. this thing that you think gives you superpowers, yeah. you also have to contend with that disposition to go the extra mile mm-hmm. that you're convinced is the reason why you've been able to make your way in the world and be successful and, and yeah. do all the things that you do. And finding a you know a healthier, more sustainable fuel source, energy source, and 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 putting like putting that idea you know away and understanding that it's a lie is is a very you know steep mountain to climb. It is. I, I was very lucky in that. There's a incredible doctor here by the name of Dr. Ian Chung. He's, I've had him on the show. He's an amazing guy. He really really helped me. And. He just kind of matter-of-factly told me, goes, I don't know, yeah, this is OCD. And I was like, oh, and I deflated like a bouncy castle after a toddler's birthday party. Like, you know, huh? And he goes, wait, 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 wait. Like, I can't tell you how many Olympians, how many, you know, Wallabies, it's a, a national rugby union football yeah. team, you know, like lawyers, like the amount of people that have sat there in that chair and I've told the same thing to you. Like, come on, why do you think you got the career you've got? I was like, what? And he goes... He said, do you think, and he was talking about particularly like there's an Olympic swimmer. He says, do you really think that that kid who will stare at a black line on the bottom of a pool four mornings a week from the age of eight so he can do it in Tokyo in 12 years from now doesn't have something like that going on? Six mornings a week and then six afternoons a week. Precisely. 12 times a day for, you know, two hours at a pop. Do you think they don't have something like that going on? He goes, of course they've got something like that going on. Of course they do. That's how they can do that. It's, it's making sure that you only use it for, you know, see it as a superpower. And I was so grateful that he helped me reframe it like that. It's like the bits that have given you the life you've got, you don't want to lose those. The parts that can really, you know, be bad is when it gets out of control. And, and then it has, you know, it has got to the point where it's nearly killed me. Mm-hmm. And it's learning how to manage that stuff that is, um, it's the kind of ongoing effort and it takes... I know there's this amazing TV show that I really implore you to watch. It's called Bluey. And there's a game in uh, uh, Bluey called Keepy Uppy where they basically just try to keep a balloon in the air. And it's basically that, uh-huh. you know. So we're at the balloon in the air part. It was holding the Atlas ball above my head like I'm, you know, for Bjornsson in the, you know, whatever it is, uh-huh. the strongest man in the world thing. But now it's just keeping a balloon in the air. But if I don't, if I keep my eye off that, if I let the balloon fall pretty soon, within a couple of days, things start to get pretty, mm. pretty grim. Yeah, what's interesting is with sobriety, so I meet you when you're like, I don't know, two years in or something like that at that point. Yeah, but only only a year of meetings. Really? Okay. I only just on my fourth and fifth when I met you. Yeah, Mm. yeah. I was pretty white knuckle. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I I was like- You were that raw at that point. Yeah, well, I thought I could do it, but by not drinking and then doing all the work, not doing any work, Mm -hmm. I was essentially just come off my meds without anything. Yeah. You know, so I was like- you ever go on like butter smooth tarmac and then you miss a turn off and suddenly you're on an ungraded gravel road? It was that. Yeah. I was like, suddenly I was like, what the fuck is this? I don't know what to do here. <laughs> yeah. So that brings you in. But this is on some level still 
the very beginning of your mental health journey yeah. and adventures. I was really lucky. Like the bottoms that you've had with <sighs> mental health in sobriety are yeah. much lower than the well, one that brought you in oh, man. into the rooms in the first place. I was place. so lucky that I'd stop drinking by then. So, so, so lucky. Oh, you wouldn't have made it. No, There's no way. way. No way. I would be dead. Absolutely. Um, yeah, things got really bad. And it was like like many things. It's, um, you know, I'm a fan of the... Um, uh, 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 Robert Gonzalez book, I think that's his name, Lawrence Gonzalez book, Deep Survival. It's really good. I try to read it like once a year. It's a fantastic read. It's about what happens to your brain in survival situations. And um, he he talks about like real proper, proper cataclysms, like mega, mega airline disasters and things like that. It's not one thing. It's not two things. It's like five to seven things in a row that happen. And by the time number seven happens, it doesn't matter because you got nowhere to go and it was like that you know I was uh, I was living in Venice Beach um, I we had yet to get the green light for another season of the show that I was working on so I had no work I was paying rent out of my savings um, I was in a relationship with someone who was wildly inappropriate um, it was extraordinarily you know uh, interesting and volatile <laughs> yeah, okay. but uh-huh. wildly inappropriate and um, I was under a lot of stress. Um, my father was ill back here in Australia and I didn't, you know, I was, I was not sleeping. It'd been weeks since I'd had actual sleep and I would, I would, if I did sleep, I would wake up and the bed, I'd strip the bed like it was laundry day. I'd, I was thrashing around that much that I would like mm-hmm. the pull the actual elastic corners off the off the off the bed. I was thrashing around in my sleep that much, so I hadn't it didn't weeks since I'd had a decent sleep, and that's a real that's pretty bad. If you, that's happening, there's a lot of red flags that I was totally walking straight past, and then like just one day I I woke up and I read I had a made coffee like I always do, and I picked up my iPad and I was reading the New York Times like I always do, and like they always do, they wrote in the corner, oh, it's going to be you know. Sunny in 72 because it's LA and it's, that's what it is every goddamn day. But then they wrote in the tiny little Times New Roman font, oh, by the way, this is the 114th warmest consecutive month ever recorded. Passive aggressive bastards that they are, but they would do that. And something in my head just went like that. And as far as I was concerned, like there was absolutely nothing we could do to stop the full and completely cataclysmic untold terror, destruction, end of the world, climate change, disasters. And it was, as far as I was concerned, it was happening today. It was happening right now. And I was the only one that knew about it. And it was terrifying. My brain just went on this cascade of, of, of horror and fear. And, and I couldn't stop the thoughts. And what I normally would do is I would run to manage my, my mm-hmm. mental health and it had been really useful and I'd got to the point and I loved it. You know, I'd got to the point where I, I was running 10 Ks a day. Just that's what I do. I'd run from my house, I'd go touch the Santa Monica here, turn around, run back. And, um, on the weekends you showed me that, um, where the Nike missile silo was. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I'd just go run that on a Saturday. I go run a trail half on the, on a weekend to do that. That's what I did on Saturdays. I just doing, <laughs> and that was that fit. I loved it. And I was, and it used to make things pretty okay. You know, that did a lot to regulate me. But I remember running and I reckon I got about, I got past the skate park and I think I got, I got almost to, I don't know, somewhere a little further past the skate park and, you know, I'm, I'm seeing things. I'm seeing like those kind of Baywatch towers um, and they're, they're, they're floating like they're on there. They've got a big concrete block and a chain underneath them, right? And they're 
pushing against these chains floating in a now higher sea level, all right? And I look up and these, the tops of the palm trees, I look up and now I'm, I'm looking at them as if they're underneath of lily pads, you know, because I'm now on the new sea floor. And I can see, the, the, I'm seeing like, do you ever watch Mr. Robot? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They did that really well. Mm-hmm. When I watch Mr. Robot, it's When he's like, having those break, yes, breaks from reality. Yes. It's like yeah. when I watch BoJack Horseman, I'm like, mm. someone knows. Yeah. <laughs> someone knows. In the writer's room, someone knows. So in, in Mr. Robot, they, I remember t- talking to Audrey going, it's that. It was that. It was that. Where it kind of glitches in and out. Yeah. And like it wasn't all the time. But I wanted to, I wanted to warn people. I wanted to grab people and go, don't you understand? Like it's all going to, and I knew, I knew enough, like if I want to grab people and warn people, and you see that, you see people who are struggling really badly shouting on the streets. You see that because that's the symptom of you want to try and help everybody. I was like, fucking hell, I want to, I want to, and I was, the thoughts hurt. They were coming and they wouldn't stop and they hurt like I was chewing on alfile or, or or you'd poked me with a barbecue skewer, right? And so I'd f- like this and they would come at me and I started to f- flinch and push them away like they were mosquitoes. I was like, fuck, I've got to get home. So I turned around. I didn't run that far, maybe only two, three k's. I turned around and came back and I'm, and I'm running and I'm grunting. like I'm making noises like <clears throat> every time it hit and I'm flinching like this. And... um. Up ahead of me on this on the path, I see this guy and he's shuffling. Now, if you've never been to that part of the city, of that part of the world, like complex, untreated, complex mental illness on the streets yeah, in California few, is terrible. It's yeah, terrible. It's, it's a complete tragedy that the richest country in the world allows it to happen. And the police are untrained and unable to deal with it when it goes bad. And they people would die by cops all the time. And it was awful, awful, tragic. And up ahead of me on the path, I see this guy. He's kind of shuffling along. He's got no shoes on. His pants are too big for him, so he's clearly not eaten in a while. He's got this big bloom of urine. He's clearly peed himself. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I run up along next to him, and two things really hit me. It's like, he's younger than me. He's got this kind of shaved piece of his scalp there. So I don't, I don't know what's going on, but he's got a shaved part of his scalp. And he's doing the same thing. He's going, uh, uh, and he's doing this. I was like... Oh, fuck. And I knew at that moment, the only thing was dips. I knew something was wrong. I don't know if he knew something was wrong. I ran home. I ran upstairs and I called my um, my mentor, David, uh, who is a guy that guides me on my sponsorship. He's, he's my sponsor. So I called David and I'm like, he's like, hey, buddy. I'm like, <gasps> Climate change is going to fucking, you know, the fucking, I did not draw breath. And the forest fires are going to, the whales are going to die. There's no food, just water, get your family out of here. I know you live in San Diego. I just couldn't stop. It was like, it's, it's called um, plosive speech, right? I was just, blah, 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 blah. and he says, okay, two things, mate. Number one, this is way beyond my pay grade. You need to get to a doctor right now. And number two, you're really lucky because crazy people don't know they're crazy. So you better get to see your doctor fast. Yeah, you had a little bit of self-awareness of yeah. what was happening. But at the same time, this is real. Like it's, in your mind, these things are actually happening. Oh, yeah. It was, they were and they weren't. And that also caused a huge amount of pain because I knew they kind of were and kind of weren't. And I, I, it, I didn't want to accept that it was happening. And it was enormously painful. And this went on and on and on and on. And eventually I went to go see my, psycho- my psychologist. I finally got to go see him. I had to wait the whole weekend. And then I go see Did him. Did it fade or you were in this persistent state? It was pretty bad. It kind of wow. came and went quite a bit. It was really bad. And I went to go see him. 
And he had these Eames recliners, like it was beautiful, beautiful place. And I sat on the edge of his and I said, mate, you get a, do you have a gun? Do you get a gun? Can you hide up in Big Bear? Go home. Because like, the, you remember Rodney King? You remember the riots? Remember how the city was on fire? Like, that's going to happen again. There's going to be fridges. And I was just like going for it. And he goes, hmm, mate, you're experiencing a form of psychosis. This is paranoid delusions. And at the moment I was like, oh, he's in on it. He's a fucking climate denier. And at that point, I was like, oh, fuck. Part of me, whether it's God or Buddha or Prince or whoever it is that watches over me, I was like, hang on a second. If you don't believe him, you're in trouble. And I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? But that was the first thought in my head. You had a shroud that was still tethered to the real world. My first thought was like, he's he's in on it. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Wow. It was so scary. It was so scary. And he told me, you know, he told me what psychosis was and that you're really going to need proper medication and you need to go see a psychiatrist and, da, 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 da. and I'm like, yeah, yeah, fine. I'll be fine with that meds. Dumb idea. <laughs> Dumb idea. Eventually I did get meds and um, it, was ter- it was terrible because, and this is a really hard part, is like this shit doesn't stop and it's really painful and it was happening every five to eight seconds and eventually my brain started to consider and come up with ways to make it stop. Unfortunately, it was a very permanent solution to mm. what was a temporary problem. I was I was back in the Middle East. I was shooting a TV show. I was, had a job that I was going to go do. And so I was doing this job in the Middle East and I was in this hotel room and this idea popped into my head and it wasn't like, oh my God, I've got to... It's just not working out with this girl I'm seeing. I'm going to have to call her. I've got to be a man. I've got to fucking call her. And I'm going to see her. And I'm going to look her in the eye and tell her it's not. And then like, you know, the kind of nervousness mm-hmm. you might feel with yeah. an idea like that. Like, I'm, oh, I'm going to have to break up or whatever. I'm going to have to fire someone. Or it wasn't that. It was like when you're doing your ocean swimming, right? When you're doing your Otolo thing, round about, I don't know, mile 40, that thought of a hot shower. And you went, oh, man. That's going to be so good. I'm going to get out of the hot shower and I'm going to peel this wetsuit off and I'm going to do a wee and I was going to care and I was going to feel so amazing. I'm going to feel my body warm up. Oh, that's what it showed up as. I thought it would show up as some super scary thing. It showed up as like the best, kindest, most amazing thing that I could do. Mm. And again, Rich, I was so lucky because I'm like, hang on a fucking second. If I'm convinced that the forests are on fire right now and the sea's rising... How is this not also a distortion? How is this not also not real? And I got on the phone. I just started calling people because I had been trained through my time and, you know, sobriety is like before you pick up a drink, pick up the phone. So I just started calling people and I reckon I was on the phone. I just looked at where the sun was, wherever it was in the world. And I'm like, I know someone that lives near there. Hi, you haven't spoken to me for about a year. Uh, <laughs> I just started calling people wow. just to check on the... I mm-hmm. called my brothers because it was Australia was awake. So I called two of my brothers and we were FaceTiming and Skyping and stuff and just checking on the world with their brain and being really aware that I, I wasn't able to process things very well. Um, it was so frightening, mate. And this went on for a long time. That vacillation between catastrophe and then that blissful state and understanding that that's just a different version of the same thing is also a level of self-awareness that probably saved your life. Mate, I but just, the thing yeah. is, dude, 
like I I remember when you went to the Middle East, like yeah. we were hanging out around that and you would share with me like I'm having issues with my mental health and I didn't fully appreciate or understand what you were actually going through. Right. I don't think it was until, and this I think was much later, when you came over to the house and and Mel, our friend Mel, was yeah. over and and we were having like a tea ceremony. Oh, with we Wudo. served you. We yeah. served you tea. Yeah. Oh yeah, with when Wudo was there. Yeah, yeah. And you were convinced that the tea contained some kind of mind altering substance. Without a shadow of a doubt, you literally as I was you freaked out yeah. and laughed, and and it really scared I me. I might as well have done ayahuasca because like, I was I I yeah. bore witness to yeah. a small slice of yeah. what you were going through, and that it wasn't until then. And this probably this was much after this yeah, was, was this was a couple of years. I was still after pretty fragile. There, but I was still pretty fragile. At that yeah, point. and that that's when I realized, like, oh wow, like yeah. this is this yeah. is serious. It, yeah. And what is the what was the diagnosis? I mean, you had this <laughs> psychosis. Asked, this episode was psychosis, but is it is it bipolar? Is it like schizophrenia? No, what it was it? it wasn't schizophrenia. Um, it, it was you know, from what I understand is like. The, what I was experiencing was a really acute, um, it was like, this is what, like untreated anxiety and uh, OCD and as I found out later on, ADHD, all that stuff spinning me up into this place of extraordinary anxiety mm. will then start to pop up into, um, uh, up into psychosis because what's uh, neurosis is when, uh, you know, you, you, break a leg or you lose a job or, you know, your, your, your partner leaves you. And you have an irrational fear. And it's, well, it's the, it's the pain caused by not being able to accept reality. All right. That's, that's essentially neurosis. So like, this is the thing that is actually happening. I don't want to accept it. So it really hurts. All right. Cause I don't like I have this job or my lover or can walk. Psychosis, I've got to explain uh, to me that psychosis is when that pain becomes so great, your brain starts to reinterpret, interpret the reality to keep you safe. And so it, I started to realize that um, I was observing things through my sight, my taste, my every input that I could touch was being filtered through this bizarre kind of distorted cataclysm of doom. And I wonderfully and very gratefully, I'd learned how to meditate at some point. And um, it was light Watkins. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Light. God, we're just dropping every Venice Beach name ever here, right? And he's coming back on the show on it pretty soon. Oh, cool, man! Yeah, Tell yeah, him, he's hey, got a new book. Out. And I was in Amsterdam because I was going to business school over there, and I'm I'm meditating in this amazing Airbnb on the canal, and it's unbelievable. And I'm in in meditation, and I'm doing that thing that um, oh, what's his name? He's got a funky voice. Uh, the Austrian sat on the bench. Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. You are looking at the pain, buddy. What you're seeing, like I was doing that, right? <laughs> okay. So I'm meditating, I'm meditating, and just, just enough breath between me and the thoughts, all right, just to watch some more go by like that. And I was like, huh, I don't see anybody else freaking out. I don't see anybody else worried about that. I mean, people are concerned and that's normal, but I'm the only, huh, maybe something's, Ah, and it was only in that, it was only being able to meditate and observe my own thoughts being that distorted, I understood the amount of trouble I was in. So I pretty quickly went to go see a psychiatrist back in Santa Monica, amazing guy, super fucking smart, really smart. And he just looked at me and he said, mate, I never lose. The only tricky part is getting the dosages right. But once we get the dosages right, 
you'll be fine. And I really wanted to believe him because I was thinking about suicide 20 times a day. And that's a really fucking hard thing to do, hard thing to deal with. And that went on for a really long time. And this is the thing about, about meds. Um, I think I was on, I'm on my ninth different iteration of medication right now. And it's actually doing pretty well, you know, um, but it's all in titrating and it's all in getting the dosages right. Um, but you know, for a while there, I was on two kinds of antipsychotics and SSRI. I was on an NSRI. I was putting on a kilo a week from all the, um, from all the, cause they fuck with your insulin, mm-hmm. the antipsychotics. And, um, but eventually, you know, it started to kind of get, get better. And, um, the meds, the meds work, but the meds don't do the job for you. And the way I would describe, the way I would describe medication for this kind of thing, mate, it's like you are in the world of cycling. Um, I can take all the EPO that I want, right? Uh, I can dose myself like, you know, I was on the postal service team and whatever, but I've still got to pedal my fucking balls off to get the top of the Alpha Wes, all right? You still got to do the work. It's not like I inject this and my bike magically gets to the mm-hmm. top of the mountain. Hey, gold jersey! No, you've you've seen photos of those guys who are on the gear. They're ah, pain faces. They're all on it, but they're all you know. They're not all of them. Depends on which documentary you watch. Uh, a lot of them are on it. Like you've got to really do the work, and the meds let you do the work. If you don't do the work, it doesn't get better. The meds give you the space to do the work, and. Um, wonderfully through the support of a, I have a psychologist and a psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist is like the, like the mechanic who makes sure that the engine works right. And the psychologist is the rally driver, um, the mm. navigator who's like, you know, <laughs> 45 turn in five, three, 90 degree turn. Left, you know, they, they shout out all the turns to the rally drivers. They shout out all the turns to the rally drivers. So I've been working with two people for quite a while now. And getting back here, I met this amazing guy. I had him on the show the other day. He's um, Dr. Adam Bayes. He's um, actually leading uh, leading the research into um, psilocybin and the treatment of um, treatment resistant depression here in Australia. It's amazingly smart. Yeah, and that's interesting. Are you are you, what is your perspective uh, for yourself with respect to those compounds, mate? I've I've seen. I did a whole documentary about suicide prevention. Um, uh, it was incredible, and, I, and I've, I've you know, I've met people who are going through um, t- TMS and DTMS and experimental ketamine therapy and stuff like that. So I've, I've actually spent a fair bit of time with people who are, you know, dealing with chronic catastrophic treatment-resistant depression. It's horrible, horrible. It's not the sort of thing you can have a smoothie and nice walk and you'll feel better. Like there's your brain switches completely set to doom and you cannot move them. Um, what's really interesting about psilocybin is that the way, what it does to the brain is that and certainly the way that Adams describes his study is that with very little treatments, maybe only two treatments, but they're quite intense. There's two psychologists. They go on for a long time. And it's really, really uh, important that it's done in a very particular way. Um, with only one or two treatments, you can have a humongous... Um, and, and that's amazing because I'm someone who, you know, dealt with the side effects of medications. Like your testosterone goes out the window and I'm mad Audrey in the middle of all of this, all right? So yeah. like me, the woman is now my wife and the mother of our kids. With the testosterone, that's like to try to explain what no testosterone is like from these drugs. It's like, hey, you're in the woods and it's raining and you need a light of fire. Here's a box of matches. No matches in the box. Mm. <laughs> you're like, it's really, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's not hard, but you know, it, you know what I mean. Like, it's 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 a real drag. Um, look, unfortunately, Adam told me because I've had episodes of psychosis and I'm not allowed to participate in the trial. I'm like, Motherfucker. Oh wow, <laughs> that, that that obviates you from. Being yeah, able I'm, to not do allowed, it. I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to play. <clears throat> Interesting. No, I mean, I I ask. Certainly, you know, there's all kinds of of 
um, evidence of the efficaciousness of, of these mm. compounds with these resistant conditions. I mean, yeah. there's no question about it. And I think it's very exciting to see that unfold and, and you know, with the development of these new therapies that are, are undoubtedly helping lots we of people. Be really careful, but it's man. tricky, especially yeah. when you're in recovery. Like, it's like, is this, because, you know, my brain lights up and says, yes, please. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, know, it's like... <laughs> this is the thing. We're 50 years behind on the yeah. research because this stuff started to escape the labs and there was Mm-hmm. studies, I don't know how they got approved, but there were studies where the doctors were taking it at the same time as the patients and all the research got shut down. So no, fi- I know. Yeah, and, that, and we lost decades of knowledge. Yeah, we could have helped a lot of people. Uh, know, that, would have, that would have advanced yeah. that. And it's certainly, it's not something that you want to, you know, do in your backyard with a right. bloke whose name used to be John, but now calls himself, you know, Panther Forest or whatever. <laughs> there's a lot of those people. Wears a bearskin hat. There's a lot of like, people. There's a lot, of, yeah, there's no, a lot of that going on right now. No, you want um, a proper psychiatrist. But my Adam, sorry, so Adam was super smart and is super smart and was willing to question his initial hypothesis because I'm on all these meds and it still wasn't right. Mm-hmm. It's like, what else is going on? Something else was going on. And so we came down off all these meds and I had to do a week without them. And I was doing breakfast radio at the time and I had a, you know, I was fucking living the dream. I was doing breakfast radio from my house. I had a line into my house. It was I unbelievable, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Just go down to the basement, you're Dude, on the radio. It was the best. <laughs> and so he said, okay, you need to do a week without to give you so it can work when you come back on the other ones. And he said, uh, here's some, you know, Valiums. And I came home and I had them in my hand and I gave them to the audience. I said, hide that, give them to me when I'm being a bastard. Don't tell me where they are. Because me and Valium, are, I've, mate, mm-hmm. Prince Valium has ridden me into the sunset. But also you're titrating off all of these powerful psych yeah. meds. Well, it was over quite a while. It was over a number of weeks. But that one week, man, I remember telling the radio people I was with, it was one morning, I had three people I was on the show with. Within the space of the first hour, each of them texted me going, fuck, you're fast this morning. Fuck, you're funny this morning. Man, what the fuck? You're amazing today. And I was like the radio person that I always wished I could be. But the rest of the day, I was like, I just couldn't, I couldn't handle that operating speed. Like, no wonder I used to, you know, drink and use so much. Yeah, to slow it down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't. And that broke my heart a bit because I was as funny But also fast. you must be thinking, oh, wow. Like, let me just like, <laughs> that's a, uh, you know, how can I have more of that as my career superpower? Well, maybe. On, is there a euphoric kind of feeling with that also? Um, I think it was more the, you know, that I, it, it's the thing that I guess got me in the door and got me quite quickly up the ladder. But by this point, it was unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of broke my heart because I had to face that. I wasn't able to, you know, I mean, even Lewis Hamilton's got brakes. You know, I didn't, I wasn't able to mm-hmm. stop it. And that was the hard part. I wasn't able to regulate from that. And that was a bit sad, but I understood I was able to come to like, well, I can do this or I can be safe and have a life and be able to have relationships with people. And I think I'd rather the latter. Yeah. Um, so Adam, we started, he said, he started treating me for OCD. And once we changed on the OCD meds, things started to work really well. And within a number of weeks, things got pretty good. Um, and then I went and saw a acceptance commitment therapy um, psychologist. And then I got really stuck into, the ex- into um, uh, basically exposure therapy, which is terrifying and horrible. And I remember I was on just kind of, you know, garden variety selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors by this point. Um, which just helped grease the wheels, you know, and help give me the space to do all the, the, the work essentially and rewiring the neural pathways yeah. that I needed to do. And 
my exposure therapy. Like this is the point where I would drive my car in LA and I had my car on the dashboard had the word climate control written on it. The word climate made me want to shit my pants and vomit at the same time. Like I was so, so sensitive to any kind of trigger. Like I would walk out the door and if I felt the warm sun on my skin, I'd be terrified. And this is years later. This is like 2016, 2017. This is still happening. It was the worst. And so I was like, I can't live like this. I cannot do this every day. I will not do this. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. And so I went and found Janine, who's amazing. And, you know, I would, I would sit there with her and she had these really interesting pictures and she'd sit next to me in her office. She had an iPad and it was an art project, I think, where they took photos of really famous parts of London and New York. And I think oh, I was one other city. Um, I think it was Los Angeles. Like the bull in downtown, mm-hmm. and near Wall Street, that mm-hmm. big bull statue. It's like 90 centimetres above the high tide mark, all right? And there was this picture and you could put your finger on it and swipe it that way and it would give you a, an artist's impression of what, you know, when the West Antarctic ice shelf right. melts, which is three metres or so of sea level, what that's going to be. And I would swipe it back. And I would do this for about 10 minutes, just shaking in terror and wanting to shit myself and wanting to vomit. And then she would kind of talk me down through it. And then we would, I'd go back, you know, a little while and we'd do something very similar and do it again and do it again. And then it got to the point where I was shooting a TV show in Fiji. My wife's from, from Fiji. And people don't give a shit about sea levels in Australia because like it doesn't affect them. But let me tell you, in Fiji, there's villages that have been there for hundreds of years where, you know, the village used to be as big as this table. Now the village is this big because mm-hmm. it's just been washed away. All right. And I would sit there and there was a village right next to where I was staying. And I would sit there every afternoon, um, sometimes when the tide was high. And so I'd sit there as the tide was coming in and I'd look to my right and I'd see the water washing up underneath the houses. And, you know, you could see where they, they bury their ancestors on the land, you know, and you could see where the ancestors were buried and like pretty soon they're going to have to move the grave or they're going to be seeing bodies. And, and it was horrible. But I did that every day. I did that. I just forced myself to be with it every single day. And I still do it every day. Like if I see a, if I see a headline that would, I would otherwise have previously shied away from, I will click on it and I will read it and I will be with the discomfort. And it is only, it's like anything, Rich. It's only in being willing to be with the discomfort that we then get the adaptation response. Yeah. And that goes for your muscles, it goes for your endurance, it goes for your mental health. If you, the more you run away from it, the worse it gets, unfortunately. Like, the less you run, it's not, you don't run faster. <laughs> the less you run, the slower you run. So, you know, it's only willing to be with the discomfort that any change happens. Uh, you don't have to do heaps, just a little bit. I think the magic number is like 4% or something. It's just a little bit, but just enough, just enough to to be with it and then it's just a little bit easier the next day but then you make the discomfort a little bit harder mm-hmm. and then slowly the thing is mate if I if I ran away from everything that scared me I'd live my life on the head of a pin and what does that give me it gives me gives me no options it gives me binary it gives me I don't want that so I'll hide and that's not a lot of choices to go through life with but if I'm willing to be with the discomfort suddenly I've got possibility if I'm willing to be with the discomfort and go okay this is awful I wonder what wonder what could happen here because I've only ever known what that looks like. What could this be like? If, you, if I approach it, try to approach it with curiosity and be aware of how painful it is, but also go, well, what else is happening here? Because it might not be as bad as I think, or it might, I might, I don't know all the answers. Someone else has probably got a pretty good idea. 
it's isn't being with that curiosity and being with that willingness to be uncomfortable that that's that is what has allowed me to actually have a have a life now and I can sleep at night. I'm so sorry that you've suffered so much and it's so much more than than I originally realized and it's a credit to you and your commitment to getting well that you're able to sit here because I think, you know, a lot of people, perhaps the majority of people who have who might have found themselves in a situation where you know, they're seeing things that aren't real. They don't make it back yeah. from that. I know. They end up in those institutions yeah. that have that smell that you can't forget. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's the common sort of scenario. Yeah. That's how that generally plays out. I got really lucky. People. As I said, I got really lucky because I learned that just because I think it doesn't make it real. I learned that a long time ago. I fought it, you know, and I didn't want it and to. And how do you <laughs> know today when to differentiate, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I do a lot is of this checking. happening right now? Are no, we here? Yeah, we're here. No, 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 I mean, we're no, here no, having we're this good. conversation, Yeah, everything's right? fine right now. You're, you're, you're locked in, you're I, anchored. I have no problem reality checking. I have no problem checking. And, and for a while I would be, um, I, I, I will check. Uh, sometimes I cannot understand uh, emotions in a room. And um, that it, it turned out that it, yeah, it's the... ADHD diagnosis, but mm. I'll not be able to understand things and I'll check, I'll, like say if I've done a promo thing and I'm doing a radio interview and I give one of the, you know, one of the anchors, the hosts some shit and they go, oh, 7.15, I'll see you, oh, see you later, man. And I walk out and ask the publicist, did I fucking blow that? Are they upset at me? No. Like, okay, because my head is telling me that I've just destroyed my career and my relationship with that person. And I'm like, no, nah, you know, okay, okay. So then every time my brain goes, you fucking blown it, you blown it. I'm like, but hang on. Um, nah, Peter said it was fine. And I just remember that other thing that the other person talked about. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the but person who doesn't have my brain. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't imagine how terrifying it must be to not know whether something that's happening is real or not. Yeah, it's not fun. It's, it's absolutely terrifying. It's because it's, you've never, we, we, yeah, it's so scary. It's so, so, so scary. Um, but I don't know, man. And is there a sense of, of, like, what's the origin story here? Like, where does this come from? Is this a genetic thing? Is this, you know, a, a result of a series of traumas that went untreated for a certain period of time? Is it even worth trying to understand that? Or is it just about like, I know what I need to do now to be well and hmm. stay tethered? I think it's I think it's worth trying to understand it for the purposes of, you know, well, then what can I do about it? And how can I deal with it properly? And yeah, I'm the son of two people that had to leave their countries because of war, all right? And that's going to change you as a mm -hmm. person and who they were when we were little. So there's a, a, there's a there's a, a possibility of like an epigenetic... Absolutely. ...trauma yeah. passed down Yeah, when I, wrote, when I wrote my book, I had, to, I had to check. Yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah, you're about 50-50. You're about 50-50, 50% of like what comes from your parents and 50% of like mm -hmm. what happens after you get born. Um, and so look... Like I said, you know, the, this is the brain I've got. It's the brain that gave me the life I have. I probably didn't help it by drinking and using so much and literally, you know, giving it the Jimi Hendrix Zippo on the Strat, you know, just uh, drank holes in my brain. Or maybe it saved you. Maybe it was what maybe. you needed in that moment, you know, to uh, it Sounds survive, like a donic recall you know? going on there, Richie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it, was a, it was, a you know, on some level, a coping mechanism. Yeah, precisely. Obviously. Yeah. And that was- And you were living that. a very surreal life. Yeah, it was very weird. I'm very lucky. I'm very, and I don't, you know, like I'm a white, straight, middle-class man. Okay. So 
I can walk, I can, you know, I, I could have been weird on the street and walked past the cop and they would have not looked at me twice because I had this job on TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just having a big night. If I was any other colour, forget about it, you know. I'm very, I am aware of that. It's not like I'm not aware of that. I'm very lucky that I'm, you know, in a country that has access to mm-hmm. healthcare. And I'm really lucky, really lucky that when I really needed like a lot of intervention, I could afford it, you know. But you also volunteered for it. Because, a lot of people yeah. resist it or they're, they don't have that tiny little piece in the back of their mind. I didn't want that's, it, mate. That's still clinging to reality. Like you're like, I need to call this person. I need to call this person. This person oh. says, come here and let me help you. And you show up. Don't let me, don't let me mislead you. <laughs> okay. Sir. Like, the, here's this antipsychotic. I want you to take it only when you need it. Aha. If I don't take it, I don't need it. I'm not sick. <laughs> right. And I would do that, you know? Right. I, I would, I did not want, mm-hmm. I didn't want to accept that I had this. I did not want it. And I, 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 I avoided dealing with it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Way too long. And I caused myself and others a lot of damage doing so. It's and, one thing uh, to raise your hand and say, you know, my name is Rich or my name is Osher and I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. We're, yeah. in, a, we're in a culture now that's, that's forgiving and understanding and, and has a grasp on the recovery process. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we understand that on some level. It's another thing altogether to say, you know, my name's Osher and, uh, you know, I, had a, I, I have psychotic episodes or sometimes I don't know what's real and expect people you know, <laughs> to be like, cool, you know, are you, you good? You're going to show up for work? It's well, okay. Like, so yeah. what I'm getting at is that I still think we have a long way to go yeah. in terms of understanding these types of conditions. And I think what's important about you and kind of how you advocate in this space is your willingness to be open about it. Like I remember yeah. when I was here a couple of years ago and you did a live show and you got up in front yeah. of that live audience. And yeah. maybe I don't know if it was the first time you'd done that, but it was early in yeah. your journey of saying, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna tell this story. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, yeah. it's embarrassing. I have to talk about things that like a lot of people might look at me a little bit differently, <laughs> you know, as a result of it. Oh. Um, but I think that there's so much power in your, in your. Y- y- there's a lot of courage uh, to be that vulnerable in front of people. Well, f- firstly, like it's been a long time since I've had any breaks with reality. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's been a long time since I've had any of those episodes and I'm, I live every day knowing that they are. It won't be tomorrow, it won't be in six months, but they're not far if I don't keep things ship shape. You yeah, know, you, you got the little, the, the balloon. Keeping the balloon. Kind of yeah, it's important. I got to do, I got I got to, there's things I need to do every sure. day. But because of the things that I do every day, I have this incredible life that I'm more productive and, you know, than I've ever been in my career. Yeah, and, and like, you have like a million jobs. Let's uh, let's be uh, straight. I mean, you, yeah. you know, like, I don't know how many TV shows you host, but it's a lot. Only and you two. seem to have many Only podcasts two. Only and two. you're doing this news thing now, like yeah, a live event. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, this sort of live Colbert type Pretty much. experience yeah. with news and comedians. Yeah, it's really fun here in Australia, like yeah. you're incredibly productive. I, I don't know, man. I've got a lot in my head and I've got to get it out. And I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to get it out in the healthiest way possible. Um, but there was something you talked about before that I just lost it now. You were talking about um, psychosis. Oh, yeah. So when I first got sober, all right, I remember sitting, there was a particular meeting I would go to. And uh, I'm, I'm a part of a, a fellowship of men and women who mm-hmm. count days and take steps. There's more than 11, there's less than 13. You can figure it out. The secret thing that we're not supposed to talk about, secret. but everybody knows what you're talking it's about. It's my super secret. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, um, 
and I would sit there and I, I remember this particular place, it was on it was on Sunset, it was above a bar. I don't know if you ever went to that one. Oh, really, I know exactly what you're really talking about. It was a really yeah. good one. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting in this bar in the middle of the day and, and um It's a know, nooner, put, that one. It was really good. Yeah. I put my hand up and I had a chat and after the after it after the show, after the meeting, after the show, this guy comes up to me and he's probably about my age now. And he goes, mate, it's going to be okay. I said, yeah, I understand. Like I, I was literally sleeping on my friend Nick's spare bed. You know, I'd just been, you know, I had to get kicked out of my house. I was like getting divorced. It was like, oh, I was, no one could have told me anything. And he goes, no, it's, it's going to be all right. I promise you it'll be okay. You just keep coming. Do this, do that. Do the things that your man tells you. You'll be all right. He may as well have been telling me the story of Hansel and Gretel. It was a fucking fairy tale, right? It may as well have been, hey, Rich, come over and say hi to, you know, the kids. Come say hi to Audrey. But I'm going to blindfold you. And when you get into the house, I'm going to take the blindfold off and say, hey, man, describe the colors of the cars on the street. You'd be like, well, I know they're there. You're like, you just blank. Mm-hmm. Like a complete blank from where I was standing that day to this guy. He was wearing a gray overcoat. I'll never forget him. But I just needed to believe that that was possible. And he was telling me it was possible and I had to believe that he was telling me the truth. And uh, all I had to do was just go, he told me, just just do what your man tells you. Do it come here every day. Do what your man tells you and it'll be all right. And guess what? It, it was. And I'm just trying to give to others what was given to me because you can't be what you can't see, all right? And when I first came back here and I was like, I'm going to go to these meetings, I'm going to call my man David. I'm like, I'm so famous. I don't want to go to a meeting. Put my <laughs> hand up. I don't know if you realize I'm really fucking famous. And he's like... Dude, shut the fuck up. Put your fucking hand up and you'll fucking save someone's life, man. Fuck you. I was like, okay. <laughs> and, so, and, and since then, you know, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about I want to, I want me at 22 getting his, you know, long vomit-soaked hair getting pulled out of his mouth to see someone like me, not me, but someone, whoever they relate to, talking about this and going, yeah, it doesn't have to be that. You can have everything you've ever wanted more, more than you could ever fucking dreamed of without that thing. It's okay. You've got a brain that when it gets that thing, bad shit happens. Doesn't happen to everybody. Sorry. It's like peanut butter. Not everyone gets to eat it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just trying to give to others what was given to me, mate. And it was, you know, I, I found that, you know, if you can't, you've got to seek out stories of people who are where you want to be. That's why people read your book because they're like, they want to run a 5K. They read stories about you running Ultraman, but they want to they want to get off their ass and go and do something, right? So people go and read stories. They already they read Goggins' book, right? Because they want to hear they want to read a story about someone who's where they want to be and they understand that another person has done this thing. And I do the same thing. Like when I was dealing with all the suicidality, I started a podcast. Um, I was doing it with Movember. I convinced Movember to fund mm-hmm. the podcast, and I spoke with I spoke with suicide survivors for like I don't know, I did forty episodes or something. And so every like I don't know, every yeah. third or fourth episode, I spoke with suicide survivors, and I'm talking to these guys, going, "Wow, you!" And I'm the, like literally, if you watch the footage, just before we did video podcast, you watch the footage. I'm like going through it, and I'm speaking with them, and like this shit flying through my head, and I'm seeing shit. Like it was all happening. Oh my god, dude, it was. It's all happening. Yeah. And I'm just going, hold, listen, listen. <laughs> and it was really important to hear that, you know, these people had been through what I was, the kind of thinking that I was going through, having their brain try to tell them, Psst, here's a way out. Psst, I can fix this. Psst, it's going to be fine. Just do this, just do this. And that after a while, just, it's it's way more seductive than I thought. And when I heard that, I know you'll do a big warning at the start of this because there's a lot of, got to be really careful about how you communicate mm-hmm. about it, this sort of thing. Um I didn't realize how seductive the thought it was. I didn't realize that at all. 
Talk more about that. What do you mean? I didn't, well, like I was saying earlier, like I didn't realize, I thought it'd be a big, scary, scary thought. Like, and this is what I'm going to have to do now. Oh, well, I've tried and this is, like, no, it was, hey man, I got you. Come over here. Let me put my arm around you. Just do this. It'll be all better. Because it was so noisy, mate. It was so noisy. It was like being, I don't know, stuck at the worst music, fucking worst EDM music festival ever and it's at a drag strip and you're five hours from anywhere and you can't get a ride home and you can't sleep because you've taken too many drugs and you can't get out of there because your friends are somewhere and you're stuck between the drum and bass tent and the trance tent and you got all this shit blurring at you from speakers either side. It was just so noisy. My brain was so noisy, I couldn't fucking think. And you got this guy going, Psst, I know how to make it quiet. And that's mm. fucking hell, man. It was like, and it was my voice. It was my feelings. It was my idea, you know. The, the same one that goes, oh, man, I'm going to make a best chocolate smoothie. Mm -mm. It was the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm really cold. I'm going to put on my favorite jumper. Mm -mm. It was the same thing. And I, that, I was very lucky that I knew that. It was, so scary. Yeah. And I, that's the thing I needed to tell people about. It doesn't come out scary. It comes out as the best idea you've ever had. And it, no, it's not. <laughs> it's yeah. not. It's a, it, and, and five yeah, it's minutes that later. Thing that, it's that thing, we were talking about this yesterday, like you're trying to solve the problem with the same brain that created the problem. Like you're, yeah. you're, in, you're living inside a brain that is tweaked. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out a way forward. Yeah but all you have is this tweaked brain, but you don't really know that it's tweaked. No. And you're, so you're stuck. It's like a, a, a strange kind of like hall of mirrors. It is. You can't, yeah. you can't use a sick brain to think your way out of having a sick brain. It's like trying to bite your own teeth or trying to touch your right elbow with your right index finger. You can't do it. And when, and when you're in that state, you don't know that your no. brain is sick. No, you don't. No, you don't. And this is why things like, things that I'd learned earlier, things like writing things down, things like talking to people, observing, meditating, uh, uh, had really helped. Now, look, I still have hard days. I had a hard day today. I rode a bicycle here because I needed to move my body a bit to, mm. to kind of downregulate a bit from the, earlier in the day. Like, it's still hard. It's not, it's not, everything's not fucking roses. And I'm a punish to live with sometimes because I can get very, very focused, very focused to the point where you might have moved on from a topic, but I'm still talking about three sentences ago and mm -hmm. I can't let it go. And it's really hard to speak with me sometimes. And that's really tough on the people that I love. And I, I struggle with what I put them through sometimes. Um, yeah, I've noticed really in talking to you sometimes, your brain moves so quickly that we'll be talking about something, but then you'll throw a couple other things in there. Sorry. And then I, I'm, I'm like, wait, what, what is happening right now? I'm not Sorry. quite sure. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, <laughs> no, it, you know, I think in this conversation, you've been very linear, oh, but I've uh, noticed it like just socially a little bit. Can and it's happen. Just, it's yeah. just like a, it's not like there's nothing negative about that. It's just a, well, something that I've noticed. It happens. Yeah. It. Like the meds that I'm on now, they tend to wear off towards the end of the day. And so evenings can be a bit difficult because um, I can get back into those things. Mm -hmm. um, but look, that's all, you know, when, the, when, when I'm medicated, it works and it's okay, you know, but it's still, it's, look, it's like, you know, when I first got sober, I had to, I, I had, the thing that people may not understand about drinking is that it, people all understand that it affects your memory, right? But that memory affecting uh, the, the effect of the memory also affects your ability to learn and feel the 
pain and damage emotionally that you've caused. So you don't connect this horrible feeling in your body with your own actions. And so ultimately, I started drinking to blackout at 14. So here I am, suddenly I'm 36 with the emotional ability of a Mm 14-year-old trying to get through life. And I had to learn all that shit. I had to really literally learn it, like reading books about how to do it, because I had no idea. And similarly, you know, I, I have to learn how to do other stuff that people have figured out when they were six. Mm-hmm. And that's hard yeah. when you're 49. <laughs> but I am here to learn and I'm here to grow and I'm here to, like, I know I'm getting it wrong. I know I get probably get it wrong more than I'd like. But I'm not here to pretend that life's fucking amazing and rosy. It's not. It's hard. But it's also, you know, it's worth, it's worth it. It's worth trying because who I get to be because of the trying is worth it. Um, and look, I honestly, I would not, we've talked a lot about this, but we haven't talked about how incredible Audrey was in all of this. So again, I met the woman who's now my wife when I was going through all of this mm-hmm. shit, through all of it. And I remember speaking to her, just t- telling her about, you know, like all these like completely deluded things that are going on. And I'm like, you know, Pacific Islands are getting washed away and entire cultures are getting destroyed and, you know, it's like as real as real could be to me. And she just, she could see that I was in really, really bad. And she just said, look, if it does come to that, I'll be with you and it'll be okay. And that was mm. the first time in years that I believed it might end up in a different way to how I'd been convinced that it would end up. And she, you know, it was like I was in a, they used to have these dance parties here in Marrickville Bowls Club, Black Market, I don't know if anyone remembers them, but they used to cover the mirrors in black plastic, right? And it was like someone had taken a pin, because the parties would go all day uh, from the night before. And they're like, someone had taken a pin and popped through the black plastic. And there was just this tiny little pinprick of light because I'd been in that darkness for so long. And when she said that to me, I was like, oh, 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 right. So all the things that I'm thinking could happen and I could be holding her hand at the same time. Oh. And that that was the thing that changed everything. Like that that woman wow. absolutely saved my life, mate. There's mm. no question. No question. I'm very lucky because of that. Um because it was I needed someone it, it's it's worth it to be a better person for them. I was living alone before I met them. When you live alone, you don't have to, you're not accountable to anyone. You can be a bastard and, you know, you put your social face on and whatever and that's it. But then you're alone and alone's no fun. Um, so, yeah. You also don't have anyone to give you that feedback and accountability on yeah. your behavior in, yeah. in real time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's really, that's the thing. I suddenly had these two incredible people who I was, I couldn't help but be so completely hopelessly mm-hmm. in love with her and um, just so much paternal love that just showed up out of nowhere for G. She was 11. She's 19 now. You know, and I didn't know what to do with this thing because I'm a selfish prick, you know, and suddenly he's just, I'm no longer number one. Fucking hell. <laughs> you know, and it was all, it all that's it. That was like, okay, this is what I, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. I have and to. And now you have a son. Now we are, yeah, Wolfie. And, that's, and so how does that change how you think about all of this and huh. keep you on track? And um, 
it's it's very, I guess it's very kind of twofold. You know, part of it is I I try to communicate whenever I can, as much as I can with about how much work needs to get done because eventually everyone's going to get it, you know. Eventually, everyone's going to get how much work needs to get done and the work will get done. It'll just be way harder. Like, we don't have to change the diet after the heart attack. We could eat better now and not even have the heart attack or even just get a really kind of nasty scare, which is probably what we're having right now. We're having a nasty climate scare. All right, but let's not go through the heart attack. Um, But, you know, humans are humans. We we kind of wait for that, unfortunately. (laughs) It's shit, man. I know, it's Uh shit. It's terrible. It's terrible. So on one hand, it's like, well, but then again, I don't know anything. I don't know everything. I, I, I'm, I rode a bicycle here. I could get taken out of the way home, all right? And so all I have is this day. All I have is this moment. Literally all we have is now, as Wayne Coyne would say. Like, this is it. And so when I'm, you know, every day with, it's very, you know, it's really easy and very obvious when they're little because they change so much so fast. But like, she's a new kid every six weeks. Mm-hmm. She just, you know, it's subtly different, but she's very, you know, she changes so often. She still grows and changes and thinks about things. And she's a very powerful woman and just try to be as present as I can and witness to it. And, you know, know that you only have to do today. You know, I look sometimes, I've got a, I've got 13 years up the other day. And I so I put up a thing on my phone because I kind of stopped counting. And I put it up on my phone. I was like, fucking hell. And they say, oh, it's a day at a time. But honestly, mate, some days it was five minutes at a time. But you only have to do it for five more minutes and just trust that you'll be able to cope in five minutes from now because you will. And so thinking about, you asked about what's going to happen, you know, looking, how do I think about everything? Look, I just trust that whatever happens that I'll be able to cope. Whatever shows up. I'll be able to cope. It's not like some giant cataclysm is going to happen and I'll suddenly no. forget how but to you do have, shit. You have that, that muscle memory. I mean, you've endured a lot. And so you know that you're able <laughs> and capable of like, you know, getting through difficult situations. I have a lot of empathy yeah. for people who haven't been through that climate thing. I think it's really, it's really important, I think, to be with the reality of it and sit down and really have a look, all right? Because during, we had some bushfires here, Black Summer, we called it. Yeah, I was here. Yeah. It was when that was going on. Devastating. Mm-hmm. All right. And people are texting me every day because I'd read the book and stuff like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, mate, I saw this when it wasn't there for years. Like, I'd close my eyes and it would be there. Like, I'm, I've been through what you're going through right now. Because suddenly for a lot of people that in, in my life, it was, oh, oh, fuck. Like, yes. Yes, you, I get it. So I have a lot of empathy for people who haven't been through that and people who are resisting that. But it's really important. And I think a lot of the denialism that we see around climate stuff is trying to avoid that pain, all right? When you start talking about, you know, climate change, people think, oh, it's, you know, seawater or whatever. It's like, mate, it's food security. It's water coming out of your tap. It's immigration. It's national security. It's everything, but the thing is, because it's everything, it means everything's a solution. Everything in the right direction is a solution. There's everything to do. It's not like there's nothing to do. There's everything to do. And so there's everywhere to get into action because being in action is a sense of agency and being in action is freedom from 
the pain that you're in. The only way out of the flames is through. Pun intended, the only way out of the flames is through. You just have to keep moving. It just doesn't matter. Pick, pick a spot. Go in one direction. Do that. And then at least you're moving. And that can give you what you need to get to bed that night going, well, what can I control? I can control it, you know, do what I can. Do the next right thing. I got really lucky to get all the skills that I got from getting sober. Really helped me in this part. On the mental health stuff, though, yeah. in your journey, you know, with the with the book um, and the live events that you do, and the amount of time that you spend talking about this kind of stuff behind a microphone, um, you must have a sense of of the impact that it's making. You must have, you know, men, people coming up to you. Yeah. Like it's a lifeline for a lot of people. Yeah. There aren't that many people who are talking about mental health in its most severe form in the way that in the way that you do. Yeah, like once once again, I got very lucky, and I got to come off the antipsychotics. Some people don't, and I got very very lucky because of that. But I think I'm, you know, if I ask you know what does complex mental illness look like or what does psychosis look like, people might think oh it's the guy on the bus is shouting at stuff that I can't see. It can be, you know. Or it could be, you know, you in a finely tailored suit. Yeah, that's it. That's, and, rope, but that's what right? it is. So it shows up in unlikely forms as well. One in, five, in the, one, in five, yeah. one in five Australians is affected by complex mental illness. All right. And that could be person suffering it. But like for every person that has been diagnosed, five people are affected by it. So um, when you look at those stats, it's like... Which means there's a lot of people walking around. Yep undiagnosed. Oh no, diagnosed, but they're just not talking oh, about I it. See. And they're I managing see. it. And you asked earlier about, I got really lucky with my workplace because I'm I'm, I know I'm a high value employee and I was really honest with my boss and said like, mate, this is what's going on. Just so you know, this is why I'm a bit strange. This is what's happening. This is the doctors I'm seeing. These are the meds I'm taking. This is the exercise I'm doing. This is the mediums I'm going to. And all of these things mean that I'll still be able to, and I, I really need to keep coming to work because giving me something to do it's like when someone gets injured at work, you want them to get them back as quick as possible because that's a huge part of them getting better. And having an agent, a reason to get out of bed and a reason to go to work is, is a really important thing in getting healthy. And my boss, Stephen, amazing. He just said, well, what do you need from us? And I'm like, because in one, in one breath, I told it, I disclosed, and I wouldn't recommend, I'm done saying you should disclose, like only if you're really comfortable and you feel you're going to be okay. Because in one breath, I told him what was going on, but I also told him how I was managing it and told him that I was taking responsibility for it. And then that made it not his problem to fix. And I think that's a, a really important thing. Like you can, you know, it can happen to you or it can happen for you. You know, you can either let that, let it have you or you can have it. You know, it's, it's really, it's really, that's all it is. Um, and if you, if you take responsibility for it, then you have a bit more, a bit more sense that you're not being sort of flayed around so much. It still comes and grabs me sometimes mm-hmm. and kind of fucks up my day um, as it did today. But, it, it's if I know that you know, look, well, I'm doing what I can with what I have, and it, it might not be that you know. And and how how has all of this informed your relationship with your career as somebody who you know used to have that kind of fuck you mentality? Don't you know who I think I am? Kind yeah, of exactly. Oh, that's exactly that. what it was. Yeah. yeah, don't you know who to, you think I am? <laughs> to now, you know. <laughs> Being really successful and being on these really popular television shows and being somebody who's going to get recognized on the street and all of that, like, how does that influence, like, you know, where does the ambition sit? How have you right-sized yourself and and, and formed, like, a healthier relationship with all all of that? It it, it came from changing why I showed up at work. And, you know, as I said, I'll, you know, 
how do you be a worker among workers when you're the fucking guy on the telly, you know? How do you do that? How do you have a head of humility around that? And what I tried to do was try to just be the most professional. What I tried to do was like, how can I make everyone else's day at work the easiest that I can make it? So I spent a long time probably not making it very easy. So how can I make it the audio person's easiest day at work, that camera person, that camera person, this person, how can I make their day the easiest day? By being on time, by being completely prepared, by being as professional as I possibly can be, by, you know, asking them about their day, you know, being, you know, getting in and out, getting it done, all right? And that in turn makes me very good at what I do because that's what I want to do it for, all right? There was a time when I did it because I wanted to have, you know, the rating success and all that shit. And we did, you know, Australia, very risk averse when it comes to TV. So we did The Masked Singer in Australia as well. Mm. And I, I host that. I'm very lucky too. It's a fucking super fun show. But I'm, that was a big, it was a hit. The first season was a hit and people are texting and calling and going, hey, congratulations, congratulations. I'm like, I didn't want to say to them, but I appreciate you congratulating me. But it's not like we don't work as hard on the ones that don't work. We work just as hard. This, how or why it was successful has nothing to do with me. Um, all I can do is show up, do it as best I can, try to push myself, try to learn something, try to make other people stay good and then go home. And that's the job. I, I don't do marketing. I don't do promos. I don't cut. I have no idea what the other network's going to program mm-hmm. against me. I have no, no idea. I can't attach yeah, myself. Very to- different from podcasting. Bro. You have to do the whole thing, all of it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in network television, there's whole departments yeah, in yeah. charge of all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That you just you say you do your bit and then you leave and go home. But I, but I can't. I used to. I would definitely get tied into the outcome. And I know you've spoken about this, like you know, and I've heard you talk about this with people who've done you know extraordinary athletic things. It's not like the gold medal that you hold at the end of it is the prize. Who you became to hold the gold medal? Gold medal. Sorry. It's not like the gold medal that you hold at the end is the prize. Who you became to hold the gold medal is the prize. Mm-hmm. And that's why you do it. It's not, it, it's not like everything's going to be fine when I hold this thing. Yeah. No, that's, that's not it. Who you become to hold this thing, that's it. And we've got to kind of ask backwards around that with success in our, in our society, I think. You know, this amount of money at the end of the year, you've made it. Have you? Because I've had that amount of money and it was, you know, it swiftly went away, trust me. <laughs> but it didn't make, it didn't make everything awesome. It didn't. Uh, don't worry, it all, it all went away because, you know, internet gambling and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Okay. It's all gone. Gone, gone, gone. All gone, right. Gone. Yeah. It, but it, it's, it's, it's who you become because of it. And that's the day-to-day stuff, you know, because ultimately that's all, that's all there is. And who would you say that you've become? <laughs> Oh man, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I don't know, Rich. I, I'm just. I'm. I just. I don't know, mate. I don't know how to answer that question. Mm. I don't know how to answer that question. I, I, I just every step I take away from the person I was before I stopped drinking and using is is a good place to be. I think. If any of us can try to transcend the patterns of behavior that haven't served us and write new ones, then we have done the universe's service by not allowing those kind of things to carry for forward any further. And that might be, you know, 
someone's racist granddad or someone's homophobic mum or whatever. Like that can stop with you. You can choose that. Or not that I had a racist granddad or a homophobic mum, but you, you can choose to you can choose to stop that. So identifying the parts of who I am that don't serve me and going, do I really need that? Can I let go of that? Can I do something else? Like it's a bit hard because I can get a bit robotic in my thinking sometimes. So it can be hard to get the new versions of things in, but it takes, takes time, but Mm -hmm. it it eventually works. And if I can just do that, then I'm all right. And as far as everything else, mate, fit, 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 dead. That's it. I'm not, I am, there's no glide path for me. (laughs) I am. I like how you distilled it down, but I do, I do think it's worth noting that piece around interrupting the, intergenerational uh, transfer of um, hereditary or inherited traumas and behavior patterns that cause havoc. And And it could be from an ex-relationship. It could be from a a job. And and you become very present with that when you become a parent, obviously, and you're looking at your young child and and you're thinking about how you were raised or (laughs) what your grandparents endured. And you realize that you can be a stopgap. Like you can arrest whatever thing that runs in the background on autopilot. Um, You have the agency to interrupt and, and perhaps make it, you know, the last the last stop on that line, right? Yeah. So that Wolfie, you know, isn't isn't like intuiting that and passing yeah. and, and like <laughs> exuding that and then passing it on. The worst right? thing, the worst thing about parenting, it's not the sleep, it's not the, you know, being tired all the time or being crappy to each other. That's not it. They don't do what you tell them, but they do what you show them. <laughs> yeah. That is the worst part because you see some shit in them and go, you motherfucker, oh, you got that from me, fuck. And then you have to, and that's the mm-hmm. clue as to what you need to look at. Yeah, oh, that thing. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, and you have to sort that shit out because, and I think stuff like that is how another way that we can get a little closer to the kind of like society wide change we're going to need to get us out of this mess. Like that kind of fear of change, this idea that no, that's how we always did it. That's how we're always going to have to do it. No, no. You know, we have the choice to to help our children become more open to change and more open to new ideas. We have that ability. And that's really, really important because- this Well, and is, it starts with us and it starts in the home. It bloody does, mate. Yeah. It really does. Um, I think that's a good place to put a pin in it for today, mate, my friend. bringing it around the corner. <laughs> um, I love you, buddy. Uh, you know, the the journey that you've been on is just, it's 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 fucking unbelievable, dude. And the, the level of vulnerability and courage uh, that you've demonstrated to weather this and come to the other side and be in a place where you can talk about it, you know, comfortably is an incredible service Thanks, to a lot mate. of people. I, 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 yeah. Thank you so much, mate, for having me. And like, don't underestimate the role that you and Julie and your family have, have played. Because I don't know, like, I don't think you lived at, you never lived in another country, did you? Like, I was a long way, a long way from home, a long way from my family, a long way from my friends. And to be able to, like you felt it last night when you were at our place, to go, oh, a family. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's not my family. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I can leave it, I can go. Warmth, <laughs> delicious food, nice dogs. Yeah. Ah, rattlesnakes, bang, nice dogs, you know. That is unbelievable. It's a lifeboat on the other side of the planet. You know, it really is. And knowing, you you know, 
I sometimes just ride past your house. <laughs> Not in a weird way, just to go, that's where my friends live. You know, just ride past yeah. your house. Just to- Well, you, you always have a, have a home at our home. And we didn't even get to the part about the importance of, of kind of fitness and physical activity as part oh. of the mental health journey. Like we spent a lot of time on the bike together and yeah. the bike as a tool for, you know, kind of contending with demons and, and oh, getting look, to the other side. There's a huge part of, a huge part of me feeling better that involves, and I, I believe now, because I listened to a man whose career you fucking jump-started, uh, Andrew Huberman. There's a lot of references to people, but he sure doesn't reference you and I. <laughs> <laughs> Come at me, Huberman. Um, no, I love him. I'll listen to him every week. Um, he talks about the, the catecholamines, talks about dopamine, norepinephrine, um, serotonin. Now, all these things exist within my body. And when my body was not well, I needed to take meds to help stimulate the production of those things. But these things exist in my body. Though there's things I need to do to release them into my body. And that we're designed to move. We're designed mm-hmm. to lift. We're designed to be active. We're designed to move through space. We're supposed to be out and about getting our food, walking around, doing things, interacting with other human beings. All of these things, all of these hormones give my body um, what it needs to shift mood states throughout the day. And if I don't have enough of those, uh, that can be a problem. I can get quite stuck. But, and I know you, you talk about it and Audrey certainly does it to me. She's like, go swing some kettlebells, mate. Go get on your bike. Just yeah. go. And I, I understand that, you know, I, I, I sometimes, I've got a ergo now, I've got a rowing machine and it's, dude, it's great. It's 25 minutes. I can get whatever, you know, I can use that anxiety. I can use that energy that has been released in my body. There's this huge chunk of adrenaline. It's like, I don't need no pre-workout. Hit me, give, give me some deadlifts. Sure. You but know? I remember like during some of your harder periods where you were like, um, you were just out on the bike for hours, how, like the whole day. Yes. Right. And I was like, <laughs> I know what that guy, I know, oh. I know what that's about. Oh yeah. yeah. It's you know? Wednesday <laughs> and <laughs> you call me, I'm like, where are you? I'm here. It's like, that's 30 miles from your house. Yes, yeah. it is. Right. <laughs> Up a mountain. <laughs> but that's, that's what I needed to do mm-hmm. on that day to stay, to stay okay. Cause there's a sense of agency. There's a great sense of I'm here under my own power. I have some control. I have some ability to move myself. Not everyone can do that. I'm very lucky that I could. You and know. just the sense of mental space that you get and the kind of active meditative effect of, yeah. of being in an elevated heart rate and connecting with your breath yeah. that allows you to problem solve or make, you know, try to make sense of yeah. your situation and what you're trying to work through mm. in a way that doesn't happen when you're at home on the couch. Uh, no, and it's not like I sit there and I'm working through it like a math problem. No, I'll just it's be like running and going a, like, oh, seagull, it, tree. It, it happens in the unconscious part of your brain while you're doing that yeah. other thing. and then it just pops because up. Because you're not looking at it directly. Yeah, yeah, it pops up and you go, oh, there it is. And there's never a problem that I went, I took on a run that I didn't come back with a solution with. Never, not once. But I, I got to say that this is the tricky part about dosages increasing. I got that feeling from just walking around my block when I was super unfit. Uh, the problem is now is like to get that again. Like, yeah, you got it. I, I push myself. It up a well, I got a heart rate. I got a yeah. heart rate strap now, and uh-huh. you know, because the meds I'm on, I've got to be careful of my blood pressure and stuff like that. So I send them some regular updates to my man and uh, my psychiatrist. He's like, like, damn, like, yeah, I know. Like, I just mm. when I when I got my leg done, um, <laughs> I'm in the thing, and the alarm kept going off because I thought I was bradycardic. 
Because <laughs> it's like fucking 50 beats a minute, 49 beats a minute, like wow. proper. Like, because I'd just been going into the first surgery, I went in as fit as I possibly could be back in 2020. I went in so fit. They're like, Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Mm. But I, you know, I know that I don't have to sustain that kind of heart rate when I'm really like doing intervals, like really hard. But I know you only have to be there for a little bit, you know, minute off, minute on for a little while. And that's enough. Just the fire hoses your brain it's down. a major state change. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, you try to be angry or upset or scared after all that shit floods your brain. And that's for free, you know? That's for free. You can get that doing burpees. Mm-hmm. And not enough people know that, you know? It's amazing. Yeah, man. All right, well, we got to get out of here, but let's close it down with, with uh, maybe a final thought for uh, he or she who's still suffering. Like I'm just imagining somebody who's watching this or listening, who's thinking, you know, maybe I have some stuff I need to look at. Um, Osher's, you know, um, kicking up some stuff. (laughs) It feels a little uncomfortable right now. I don't know where to direct that energy. Like, do you have resources that you can direct people towards or, you know, a thought that you could share to help, you know, direct or guide that person who's dancing around the outer edges of, of, of seeking help? Well, I would say, look, I, I play a lot of poker. Like one of the things I'm really lucky for is I play a poker game every Wednesday and I've been playing that poker game since 2003. So it's the same group of 10, 12 guys. So I've got these guys that are in my life. And so, uh, and they have, we've been through a lot together. And there's a, there's a person who shows up at a poker table who doesn't know how to play very well and everyone spots them. And they kind of play them and they basically treat them like a human ATM. And that person's called the fish. Mm -hmm. And there's this phrase going, if you can't spot the fish at the table, it's you. And so if you're going through life and you're like, everyone fucking, wasn't it, do what I say, what's going on, why is everyone, everyone's everyone's the asshole. Might be you. And just, that's okay. It's okay. You are where you are with the, the skills and the tools that you've got. That's fine. There's more skills and tools and ways to deal you just need to go ask someone to show you and that's fine. It's okay. There's no shame in figuring out better ways to do things. If you're going through life and everything is kind of, it's, it's constantly a, a rocky fucking road. Like, it's okay. You are going in the direction you want to go to, but maybe, maybe you want to get a better set of tires. Maybe you want to get a better suspension. Maybe you need a better co-pilot. Like there's plenty of things that you can get on board. There's no need to gut through it. You're not alone. And there's plenty of help, plenty of help. And look, I know I live in this incredible country with this amazing healthcare system, but there's just psychoeducation alone. Learn about cognitive distortions. Learn about what happens when your body's captured by anxiety. Learn the difference between an amygdala hijack and, um, oh, what's the other one? There's an amygdala and there's a, I can't remember what it was. Learn, like when you're in anxiety, learn what your amygdala does to your body. Mm-hmm. Understand that you know, if you're in a meeting and everyone's being an asshole and da 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 da, da and you've, your hands are shaking, you've shouted the last three things you've said, you oh, I'm in fight or flight. <sighs> right. Right. Someone said something that has nothing to do with this situation, but it has triggered a response from a long time ago. And I should probably not have to claw and bite my way out of this room. I might just take a bit of a breath here. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. understand, understand that stuff and... And, and, and just kind of just learn. And, and that, you know, what's amazing is like, yeah, YouTube can convince you some pretty wrong shit, but it's also a huge amount of like really clever um, 
go for people who are actual doctors. Go for people who are from universities. Uh, there's some really clever psychoeducation out there. Just just learning what it is, naming it to tame it is a really important thing. Cognitive distortion, cognitive distortions is really powerful. Like learning what the the big cognitive distortions are, learning what anxiety is, learning what your prefrontal cortex does. You know, learning how to downregulate. You can learn how to you know this. You can do a thing called polyvagal breathing, which is really easy. It's just three in, six out. I do that in meetings all the time. I do that on air. No one knows I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? I'm stimulating my vagus nerve, like tricking my body into its relaxation response. And it's super easy to do. A four in, eight out. Don't do any more than that if you're standing up, like for <laughs> driving. Like yeah. it's, there's so yeah, many yeah. things you can do. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I would, I would echo all of that, but supplement it with this idea of not trying to, like we were talking about earlier, solve it in the confines of your mind no. quietly. No. Instead, raise your hand and let people in. Find yeah. somebody you trust. It could be a friend. It could be a colleague. It could be a professional. But develop the habit of being open with yeah. somebody who can help guide you. Like if because you, all of yeah. these things thrive in the darkness and in isolation. Yeah. And I think when you're in that situation, there's a there's shame attached to it, mm-hmm. which makes you want to kind of deal with it privately. Yeah, it makes it worse. Um, yeah. And all that's going to do is prolong it yeah. and exacerbate it yeah. over Look, time. If, if, you know, you, if, if I got, I rode my bicycle here and if I got here and, you know, I'd fallen really badly and I'd had a mad double spiral fracture in my forearm my hand was hanging down like that. And like, dude, we've got to get you to a fucking doctor. Nah, nah, she'll be right, mate. You'd think yeah. I was fucking crazy, all right? But- People do that every day when it comes to their mental health. Get to a goddamn doctor and fast because these things don't get better. They get worse, as I've spoken about today, because I wasn't treating it and it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And eventually it, it just it nearly mm-hmm. killed me. Um, but there's so much help and there's a huge amount of power that comes from taking control and taking control is to ask for help. And that's, that's, that's really powerful, particularly with men. Men like to be in charge. Yeah. Well, be in charge. Pick up the phone, pal. Go do something about it. And like if you're like, – I use automotive analogies because they work. You know, if well, there's this, 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 this idea that it's weakness to do that. But if it's weakness to do that, then why are you so scared to do it? Yeah, like so I'm in, I'm in, the, I'm in the car and I'm flying down the freeway taking my entire family on holiday, right? And um, the front left tire blows out. All right? Do I pull over? What do I go, no, nah, I'm going to keep going. Like I'm doing 110 Ks an hour and everyone I love is in this vehicle and now it's super dangerous. Like, and if I then pull over and refuse, if I don't have the tools to fix the car, what, what, what am I going to do? You know, mate, of course you're going to call the roadside assistance. Of course you're going to pull the car over. It's the same with your brain. If you find yourself like getting really rigid in your thinking and you find yourself kind of getting cranky all the time or just crying or wanting to vomit out of nowhere. That happened to me as well. Like when I was in lockdown in Melbourne, I'm just like out of nowhere. I just wanted to spew. Just like, like I've been drinking tequila kind of on. I was like, that's not good. Mm. It was just a signal going, boom. I was on the phone to my doctor like that because I know that happens about two weeks before the other shit starts. So being on top of that kind of stuff, like get some tools. You'd pull the car over. Like if you don't have that shit, get, learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. Get some tools and get your family there safely because you're, that's ultimately who's going to get hurt if you don't look after things. Sorry to come all heavy, well but said, that's the no, truth. Though. No, that's good. That's good. Um, maybe we'll get some links and some other resources we can uh, fill the show notes out with. Oh, please, yeah. Leave people with yeah. uh, some 
places they can go and some phone numbers Look, they can call. Start at start at Susan yeah. David and go from there. There you go. Start yeah, at Susan David. That's right, Dude, right? She is Amazing. the business. Uncomfortable mm-hmm. feelings are the price of admission to a meaningful life. Be with that, and that is half the work done. Right on, man. <laughs> All right, to be continued. Oh, uh, man. Love you, man. Really? Thank you. We're done. Yeah, we're done for today. I love you, dude. <laughs> I love you. All man. right. No, I was like, really? You're gonna have me back? <laughs> Plants. And go see Osher's live new NT or whatever it is. If you're in Australia, is that I don't even know what it's it's like not the new Nighttime Nighttime News Network National Nightly News. There you go. Yeah. It's not a it's not a fake news show. It's a fake news show. Because the news is a product, right? A product like anything else. And depending on how exactly the fact is told to you, uh, you can either think, wow, those people really need our help and we should look after them because as a country, we look after each other and we think everyone deserves a fair go. Or if you read it in another outlet, you go, fuck off, we're full. This fair go is only for white people. But that's what happens here in our country. And... We, I think the way that, particularly, I think the way the news media in our, in our country has been behaving and really needs to be held to account. And um, and you're the man to do it. Dude, I, you know, <laughs> putting my entire network career at risk every night, I promise you. <laughs> All right, cheers. Love you, man. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated, and sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, as well as Dan Drake. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Namaste.